We Made This. Hey everyone, this is Tony, Network Chief of We Made This. As you know, our podcast network brings together a brilliant assortment of talent who talk about all kinds of pop culture content, such as the episode you've just listened to or you're just about to listen to. We'd love to keep the lights on a bit longer if you're able to support our network on Patreon. For just £2 a month, you get your name in lights on the website and the satisfaction of knowing you're helping us produce more great audio. And for £3 a month, you'll get your name in lights, but you'll also get access to an exclusive bi-monthly podcast from the We Made This Talent Pool on podcasting, pop culture, and you tell us. We'll take your suggestions. For less than the price of a coffee per month, you can help keep We Made This going. So just head to patreon.com forward slash we made this. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash we made this to get the ball rolling. Now, back to your scheduled programming. Welcome to You Have Been Watching, a podcast devoted to looking in-depth at the fascinating curiosity that is the British television sitcom, part of the We Made This podcast network. I'm your host, once again, Tony Black, and I'm joined by my co-host, Robert Turnbull, to discuss Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant's 2001 comedy, The Office. I think this is going to be a good one, Rob, isn't it? I think we've been looking forward to doing this. I think, yeah, it's like The Office is one of those shows that I suspect a lot of people just generally have been talking about for the last, uh, well, twenty years. So, so I'm really looking forward to actually sort of like like digging in uh, and 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 talking about some of my favourite aspects of it. Definitely. Well, we realised, didn't we, that it's actually twenty years old. Uh, I know, it's like <laughs> it's, it's crazy because I think of it as being a contemporary sitcom. Yeah, but it's like yeah. you know, it's like it's it. The Office is now older than Faulty Towers was when I first watched it as a kid. Like wow. that's how old it is. It's crazy. That is scary. <laughs> <laughs> Two thousand and one was uh, was a, a a memorable year on many levels. I think actually on a horrible level, nine eleven. You know, most a lot of people remember, but it's one of those years that I very vividly remember, and I remember the office coming on TV. And we'll get into this, but it's still very vividly in my mind. This 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 show started. So the fact it's been two decades is astonishing, scary. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah, where has the time gone? But um, but yeah. The Office stars Ricky Gervais as David Brent, the regional manager of the Slough branch of paper merchants Wernham Hogg, who considers himself the coolest boss in the world, and as he puts it, a chilled-out entertainer. 
As the slave branch faced the existential crisis of downsizing and Brent is told to cut the first strings, the documentary crew who filmed the inhabitants of the office, including bored sales rep Tim, played by Martin Freeman, equally bored receptionist Dawn, played by Lucy Davis, and the fastidious assistant to the regional manager, Gareth, played by Mackenzie Crock, capture a slice of life as Brent's grasp on reality, comedy, and his role as the boss steadily begin to unravel. So it's weird, starting off, Rob, it's weird actually reading a paragraph like that because it makes because it makes it sound like it's a really like strongly plotted and complicated show. And yes, there is a narrative in there, but it's not quite like that, is it, really? So it's, it's quite strange to actually read a paragraph like that when, when I think of The Office, because I never really think of it in those terms in a way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a very strange sitcom. I mean, I think it's like, you know, there are some sitcoms that obviously you can watch uh, multiple episodes completely out of order. And I think that, that The Office is a weird one because it, it does have, it sort of has a beginning, a middle and an end, but you don't notice the journey. Does that make sense? It's like you don't you don't realise that you're going on this journey actually until you get to the end. And you kind of like, oh, this is where we were heading. This is where we were going. It's uh, there's, a, there's a subtlety to it because I think the format is is that kind of like that mundane everyday. It's a sort of a meander. But it's actually it's actually really, you know, doing doing a rewatch recently. You you notice how well seeded the endpoints are, but it doesn't. It yeah, it it doesn't it doesn't play out. It, you you don't watch it. You don't feel it as intensely plotted as like you say that that little intro to it sounds. Yeah, it doesn't. It's quite deceptive in that sense. In a, in a weird way, the reason one of the reasons we we did this. I think the second episode after Forty Towers is because there have been some certain parallels drawn in a way about the, the fact that obviously Gervais and Merchant were big fans of that show and they decided to do what John Cleese did and end it after two seasons with a, a, a two-part special. But they didn't want to go and do a third series. And I don't think it was necessarily as... Um, for Faulty Towers, I don't necessarily think it was as thought through as that. I just think that, you know, life had other plans for John Cleese and Connie Booth and this kind of thing. But it, this is different in the sense that Faulty Towers never had an arc of any kind. It was it was 12, as we talked about last time, 12 very specific, very singular episodes that you could watch in any order, really, and you could get it and you'd get the situation. Whereas The Office doesn't really work in that way in some senses. Y- yes, you could watch a season two episode and just throw it on or a series one episode, but you would, there are running ongoing running themes going through it. There is a development of it. And I think if you just said to someone, watch like episode five of series two, try it, see if you like it. I think it would do the show a disservice because by that point, everything has reached. uh, I mean, that episode I think is the one where Brent is told he's going to lose his job. Yes. So if you watch that one for the first time, it's not going to really, it would, it's not that it wouldn't make sense as such, but you wouldn't feel that in the way that you should. And I think that's the trick with The Office in that it's it's not heavily serialised, but it's it's got a story enough that you'd, I think you need to watch it from beginning to end to really appreciate it properly. Oh, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think that... I think that you could pr- you could possibly get away with with jumping in a bit more randomly in the first series 
I, I suspect. But yeah, the second series, absolutely, you can't really jump in there. It does kind of like, yeah, the, the second series, I think, has a much stronger, you've got Tim and, and you know, Rachel, that's sort of like such a strong through line. Obviously, you've got the introduction of Neil, you know, you've got the the, the Swindon guys coming over. There's, there's a much stronger linear storyline to sort of like to, to be told even though again you don't feel like you don't feel like it's being like rammed down it's not that kind of like you know water cooler tv where you kind of like oh my goodness what's going to happen next week but you yeah you definitely i think it's definitely a show that you need to go yeah beginning beginning to end so uh, uh what do we think of it then i mean uh, in broad terms are we fans is this uh is this an overrated show is it an underrated well it's not really underrated because it did very well but is it yeah. an overrated show <laughs> And uh, are, you, are you a big fan of it, Rob? Yes, I I am a big fan of it, but I I wasn't at first. Okay. Um, or no, source no. So so I'll backtrack slightly. I basically had I'd I'd seen Gervais on the eleven o'clock show. Yeah. Um, and absolutely despised him. I couldn't like I, <laughs> I hated it. You were I supposed really... to, I think. That's well, the this, thing. Well, this is the problem. But the, the problem for me was that I used to, I mean, the 11 o'clock show was a bit of a mixed bag anyway, but his his little sections, I would watch it and I just felt like, oh, you know what? This is, you're, you're pretending to be a bit of a bastard. But I think actually you're a bit of a bastard pretending you're pretending <laughs> to be a bit of a bastard so you can be a bit of a bastard. Yeah. And so I just wasn't on board with that. And so when the office first came on, I was I was aware of it, and I was like, I was like, nah, that's that Ricky Gervais guy. There's no way I'm watching that. And then it got it got a repeat, which I, th- I think it got a repeat within the first six or seven months. Of, it did, yeah, of, yeah. And I, I watched it on the repeat because my my partner at the time she was a big fan. She watched it first time um, and was a big fan of it. So I was like, okay, I'll I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. And actually, immediately on that first episode, I was I was hooked, and I was kind of like, okay, so you know what, this setting kind of suits that faux. I'm a bit of a bastard thing, <laughs> regardless of what you know what what he may or may not be in real life. It's like actually this works. So I so yeah, you know what, from watching it, I was a fan from watching it, but without watching it, I hated it. So. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what though i think that would have been the the situation for a lot of people i think so, because yeah. in, in that in that the first series didn't do brilliantly well no in, no not in at all. first run it did better on its on its repeat i think once word of mouth had started to build but you know it i i did remember really enjoying it from the first episode i think i was slightly more of a fan of gervais and i, I don't know about you but i felt like Nobody knew who he was. Nobody knew who Stephen no, Merchant was. No, I did. I did know because I used to watch the 11 o'clock show. And obviously that also was where Sasha Baron Cohen popped up as Ali G for the first time. So the 11 o'clock show for, I mean, at the time, when would that be? That was the late 90s, 2000. So I was about 18. So I was exactly the right age for that kind of comedy. Yeah. Because it was... It was it was like you say it was very hit and miss, but it was the very much that kind of Channel Four fodder that you used to get in the nineties. Yes, <laughs> the very sort of quite yeah, intentionally edgy, you know, a bit rough and ready, and that summed Gervais up totally when he played this awful, awful version of himself, this sort of heightened version of himself. I suppose you can sort of align it in a way with what Larry David does on Curb Your Enthusiasm. In a way, it's the same kind of idea. It, but it, the curb's got more of a plot, whereas in that 
Gervais was just playing this absolute awful human being. And then he did it in, um, he took essentially that same persona in to meet Ricky Gervais, which was his uh, intentionally crap gay, uh, chat show that he did. Did you ever see that one? Well, no, no, for, for, for my exact reasoning <laughs> of, <laughs> um, I was just like, nah, not watching that, not watching that. I mean, I knew people at the time who, because again, you sort of like the age, I'm a smidge older than you. I was at university. The 11 o'clock show was very much a show that my, you know, my friends and I were all watching. And uh, yeah, so I knew people who who liked Gervais way more than I did, who watched his his chat show and, and well, his kind of like faux chat show. But I, yeah, I never, I never, never bothered. And I've never, never bothered sort of going back to it. Um, I mean, it, it's actually hard to find now. I think I I, it's the, I think it might some of it might be on YouTube, but there was there was one episode that had Jimmy Savile as the guest, and I don't think you're going to find that anywhere now, you know, <laughs> for, for obvious reasons. Because the whole point was that he was getting on who would be considered you know old entertainers, quote unquote, at that point, or people who faded a little bit from the public consciousness. Yeah, uh, like like he stooge on that was Tony Green from um, Bullseye. Like, uh, yes. and he and he he play like darts and he just abuse Tony Green and make him dress up like a woman and all these random things that were again it was very hit and miss but it was intentionally it did know what it was doing and it was playing with this idea that Gervais is horrible and then at the same time you had it behind the scenes and this is where this actually in some ways it all connects to the broader theme of what Gervais and Merchant are doing with their comedy and it links to extras as well actually in that Gervais played off screen somebody who was far more cuckolded in a way particularly by um merchant who was this real perverted manager who was essentially trying to grope him in the in the and be really creepy and he was playing a role you know playing a character and they would do these sort of a bit backstage sort of inserts where Gervais was really sort of cowed and freaked out and this kind of thing and that and it was weird but it was funny but I think you re- it was really niche, you know. It was this really niche kind of comedy that you, you. Some people would go, "What is this? What is this?" And I think that meant that maybe not a lot of people tuned in for one thing. So when The Office popped up, and actually it worked in the show's favour, I think, because the reason they commissioned it is because it was cheap, and nobody knew who anyone was, so they were willing to take a risk on something they actually weren't sure what it what it was the BBC or if it would even work at first which is interesting yeah I mean I think it's it's a weird one because obviously we know that Channel 4 kind of like passed on the idea uh but weirdly I think that the show were like you say because like nobody knew really who they were a few a few people um you know probably knew who one or two people were you know I knew who Lucy Davis was you know Jasper Carrot's daughter exactly Jasper Carrot's daughter she'd done a few uh, costume dramas that kind of thing and uh, you know you've got like a few people sort of pop up along the way like Ralph Innes and stuff who were kind of like already established but but generally like the core team nobody's nobody knows who they are and I think had Channel 4 taken the show I'm not sure it would have done so well in part because Channel 4 at the time they didn't produce anything in terms of actual documentaries, they weren't producing stuff like that. Whereas the BBC, they they actually produced shows like the documentary that The Office is is riffing on. So to have that show on on the the channels that are that you're kind of like riffing on the documentary stuff, I think just gave it because I knew so many people who, you know, so many people who thought it was real, 
you know, I don't mean like watched six episodes and thought it was real, but that kind of like turned on, you know, 20 minutes into it and were like, what I did, was that a documentary? What is that? Which I think, I think that, you know, being on the BBC actually added to that. I think you're right. That fly on the wall kind of thing was popular. I mean, there's a line in them um, that makes me laugh in the last, the penultimate episode, the special. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah, obviously yeah. <laughs> after, I think you probably know where I'm going with this, which is after the, uh, the, the original documentary, quite unquote, has gone out, and uh, Brent's trying to get an autograph from this guy every day, and he goes, Are "You that fat one from airport?" Yeah, <laughs> and he goes, obviously not. And I knew immediately. He was t- he's talking about Jeremy Spake, who was at the time quite well known in that show, and he was the breakout character in that show. Yeah, but that obviously was real. You know, that was a real fly on the wall documentary. Mm. So at the time, there's there's lots of these things going on. The BBC also did produce stuff like Operation Good Guys which was pitched as like a a documentary sort of police kind of thing. Sometimes hilarious, sometimes really not. Very hit and miss, that show, but but very interesting. And People Like Us. I love love People Like Us. I adore, and I'm really sad that it's it's kind of been lost now, probably in no small part because it's Chris Langham who's in it. And obviously he's a bit, you know, blacklisted for obvious reasons. But that show, they did two series of People Like Us, and it's fabulous. I mean, if, yeah. if anyone hasn't seen that, go and find it. Go. I actually found the DVDs, and they're really expensive on uh, Amazon, but I bought them. I was like, I need this show, because it is so good, particularly the second season for me. But they were going to do a third, and then the BBC decided to do this instead, strangely enough. And while it's a shame we never got a third series of People Like Us, at the same time, this does take what that kind of thing was doing i think and transforms it to another level that like you say i don't think channel four would have done i think if it had been on channel four it would have ended up a little bit more like the original inspiration short film that merchant did as part of the bbc trainee uh, producing program which was called cd boss which featured gervais as brent in a short film uh in like an office environment and it was it was it was that's that was sort of the proof of concept in some ways, I think, for what the office became. But it was but he wasn't it was a bit more like the Channel 4 stuff. So I don't think you would have got the office in the way that they were able to do it for the BBC. No, I agree. I, I, I think that that Channel 4, I mean, I think that the office still could have been funny on Channel 4. But I think Channel 4 maybe would have pushed it slightly in that kind of uh, more of a green wing kind of yeah, direction. I think yeah. that's that's where they would have kind of like tried to funnel that. Whereas I think the BBC, you know, as much as the BBC can get a bad rap about, you know, how it commissions comedy, especially in more recent years, I think that there is a sense of especially back then still a sense of letting people get on with it, which which is not necessarily so prevalent in Channel 4, definitely not in ITV. But the BBC, even even now the BBC have got quite an, a good approach to letting people get on with stuff especially if they're producing it cheaply which of course the office the office i mean you could you could not afford to get the cast of the office together now <laughs> for like a six episode could you imagine no. it's like good grief but yeah. back then it's like yeah then nobody knows who they are they, yeah well i mean they, look at like look at look at like martin freeman is probably now the most successful who's he's off doing like black panther 2 and things like this yeah. you know and he and obviously sherlock and all that gervais is you know Gervais, yeah, very famous. But <laughs> Gervais is, will torpedo his own career at every possible chance he gets. I think basically because I think 
part of the thing he's got with fame is that he secretly loathes it all. You know, he has a real love-hate relationship with it. At the, he, he's a bit like these kind of characters he plays in that he wants to be famous, but at the same time, he hates it. And he hates interacting with people on that level, I think. He's, he's quite fascinating, I think. He's, he's an interesting character, for sure. He yeah. is. He is. Yeah. And I think <laughs> every, every role he plays, particularly the ones he writes, they are some extension or facet of what's happening in his head, I think. Um, oh, completely. I mean, you know, my God, we could do an entire podcast just about Ricky Gervais. <laughs> we maybe will, eventually. <laughs> yeah. That might not be a bad idea. Yeah, it would have been very interesting to see that alternate office on Channel 4. But you're right. I think it very quickly sort of built word of mouth, I think. And then they they saw the potential. They saw it was cheap. A cast of, like we say, not massively famous people at the time. But I think they, I think there was a lot of uncertainty as to quite how they would do it because it was a bit of an accident, the documentary format in the first place. That you, the merchant, when he first made that film, said they only did it that way because it was easier and they thought it'd be easier and it was cheaper. And then yeah. when they when they decided, you know, we've we've got to write and direct this, which wasn't the norm at that point, they they realised very quickly, I think, that they were a little bit in over their head at first, and that and it was a lot more complicated in terms of not just not necessarily the filming as such, but the mechanisms of comedy that you had to capture with The Office, which are far more complicated, I think, than they make it look. Do you know what I mean? Oh, complete. Well, I mean, the, the language of documentary is is far more sophisticated than... Pe- I think people have this idea that documentary, you just uh, point a camera and let it happen. And I think this is why you get... I mean, especially in the wake of The Office that makes it look so effortless. People think that you can do... You know, you can just stick a camera up, put the actors in front of it, and that's documentary style. But it, it's not. There needs to be a language. There's a, a moment which I actually think is, is one of my absolute favorite moments and it is in terms of like the technicality of it and it is which is it? it's the the i think it's the it guy oh um, yeah and Matt he's, he's there with with i love with, him with, with yeah yeah he's he's fantastic yeah uh and he's so spot on in that role and obviously there's a couple of sort of cutbacks cutbacks to to, to them during the during the episode uh, but there is there's one moment where because most of the scene is like the he and Gareth are in the foreground and you can see Tim in the background basically doing his faces and, and reacting. But there's one moment where Tim is basically reacting and the camera shifts round to cut Tim out because actually Tim is irrelevant to what's being talked about. Uh, even though for us, the comedy is seeing Tim's faces in the background and his looks and everything. And I, I love that moment from a technical point of view because it's it's appropriate because actually if you're doing a documentary you don't you don't do a three shot at that point because it's two people talking you you focus in on the two people and i know that sounds really it's not very, it's not very funny uh but it's it's for me that's a brilliant moment there's another moment where uh tim says to camera it's in training day where he kind of uh brent's there playing his guitar and tim basically says to camera oh he went home and got it yeah but Tim is barely in the shot. Yeah, he, uh, pop, he sort of pops his head in. He think, literally kind he? of he pops his head into the shot, and the camera yeah. basically the camera doesn't quite get him. It kind of Tim pops his head in. The camera kind of flicks to try and catch him, and he kind of says the line, and then he's gone. And it, it technically it is beautifully done because it would be so easy and so tempting to 
have the camera already on Tim or to have Tim properly step into camera. But the shot is basically it's, it's B-roll. It's like they're doing GVs at that point. But Tim like sticks his head in um, and, it, and it feels so real and so natural. Sorry, there's, there's like like gushing there. But I, no, no. I yeah, it's true. The the, the 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 technicality of what you need to make it look like a documentary is it the show is so sophisticated in that and i i, I apologize because i'll probably do lots of comparisons to the american office uh i'll try not to do too many but that's something that, that the american office um lacks that that the, the uk office has brilliantly it's that feel that you do actually feel like that you're watching a documentary what I think is interesting about the filming is one of the things they 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 were worried about at first was whether that it would be too sitcom because it, it, this isn't in a way a sitcom at all it's it's not really a situation comedy in the sense of that there is no ex, ex, exact situation the idea is that you are they they are you know that documentary film crew which you only ever really get any rationale for in the final two episodes and the only that's the only time you hear them speak the idea is that they're queuing up these people and they have obviously have a, an agenda as any documentary crew would have and originally they were going to have a voiceover by john nettles that was recorded mm-hmm. and then they ditched it because they wanted the, the sort of the visuals to speak for themselves but i think they anguished about that it would be too sitcom and they didn't want it to be they wanted you to be able to not recognize a traditional sitcom situation in this. Yeah. Even though it does then have elements of sitcom, it does then have characters who would fit in theory in other sitcom environments, but it, it shoots it from, like you say, that documentary aspect in that you, you can imagine a documentary crew wanting to capture what I think. And this is why they went with fewer close-ups and more, much more of those sort of moments where you just see the office at work. Yes, yeah. They wanted to capture that sort of existential sort of ennui, that just sheer oh. crushing boredom of yeah. <laughs> working in that office. Yes, yeah, the monotony of it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's like the, in, in the UK, our history of documentary is is that of miserable, depressing... <laughs> That, I mean, it's kind of like you go back, you know, you go back to kind of like the, the, the 60s, I guess, is where the sort of there was a bit of an explosion of kind of like documentary and that kind of like post-war. And it's all very drab. It's like, you know, you would have these documentaries about, you know, a woman who works in the chip shop in a Yorkshire town. And it's basically lots of shots of streets and cats and you know, dirty tin cans in the gutter and then you'd have this you know <laughs> mavis going like, oh when i get to the chip shop at four i have to peel the potatoes and it's i think we have a we have a history yeah. because because of the our interest in human in the sort of like human nature and the humanity of the kind of like the drab and the the drudgery of life that's something we're very interested in so I think that there is that that history there of, of producing documentaries like that. And The Office absolutely reflects that. You know, there are whole tranches. Where, you know, it's like those, I love the cutaways to like the the photocopier or phone yeah. ringing or even just yeah. shots of people answering the phone and saying, hello, Wernham Hogg. Yeah. Because it's because that's that's it's it's realistic to the language and it's realistic to what we expect to see and how we watch 
documentary. You know, we're, we're we're not a country of kind of like vibrant, upbeat, you know, lots of graphics on screen documentaries. We just like to see ordinary people maybe doing slightly worse than us. And then it makes <laughs> us feel better. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why characters like Brent appeal. You know, I mean, it, it is always the classic sort of comparison between British and American comedy characters isn't it in the american comedy characters even if they start a bit on their down on their look or weird uh i mean a good example is is from what we're watching right now parks and rec oh yeah yeah leslie nope starts a little bit weird and kooky at the beginning but then and you you're not quite sure whether she's any good at what she does but then very very quickly on the kookiness grows into a real sense of skill and everyone loves that and you really root for her to do well and you know i'm sure by the end of that show she will be happy and all this kind of thing whereas you know for most british sitcoms they're always going to be losers you know oh, while oh. you might while you might love them in a way they are always always del boy is always going to waste that million at that million he gets basil is always going to be trapped in that hotel yeah david even david even though he gets a sliver of hope at the end you know he's going to mess it up you know in the end yeah, so, it's like, and that's what we, that's what we want and expect. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a, yeah. there's a, there's a definite feeling I think for the, for the, and it's not that the, it's not that the British <laughs> are like inherently pessimistic, but I think there's a, there's a kind of a realism that we have, and we can, we like an underdog, but yeah. we, we don't like success. So, <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't want the underdog <laughs> to do that. No, well. <laughs> we want, we want them to do okay. <laughs> Because we know realistically that, that everyone yeah. does okay. And you know yeah, what? It's yeah. like, again, we could uh, maybe we'll one day do a podcast about the contrast between UK and, and US comedy. But it is that thing. It's the American dream. Everyone in America believes that if they work hard enough, they will be the president. Whereas over here, yeah. we know that we... you can work really, really hard <laughs> and you might own your own house with a decent That's, garden if, if you're, you're lucky. lucky. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But we're kind of we're kind of okay with that. So we want mm. to see that reflected. And that and that's exactly the character of David Brent in that he is Brent is somebody who and you in that sense you can see why in a way the essential DNA of that character was transplanted into an American situation because Brent in his own way is aspirational. You know, he does he does consider himself somebody who is a wasted talent. I think he calls himself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He feels like he's, he's got lots to give, you know, that he's got, you know, he's, he's this entertainer. He, he considers himself funny. He wants to bring laughter to people. He wants, you know, he compares himself to, you know, people in comic relief. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, that's beautiful. I just it's love amazing. all that. That's why I'm out here saving lives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's great when he when he's really starting to unwind, like lose it in the later second season. And he's he's talking about how he's angry at everyone having a go at Ian Botham. Oh <laughs> my god, I love like, that Do yourself moment. off the off the saves of Africans. Yeah. <laughs> like... Just brilliant. <laughs> it's great because he's he's really convinced he's got such a powerful sense of delusion of grandeur yeah that you i don't know about you because you see it in that first very first scene of the whole show when he introduced brent right at the beginning does that whole monologue you know to the the guy he's eventually going to sack 
in yes, six episodes yes, time. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but that that just crystallizes this guy, you know, just this someone I think someone you can immediately see through as an audience member. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and that's the joy of it, I think. In that and, and, and I think it's why I never at any point hate him. I never at any point like no. find him awful to watch. I just feel sorry for him all the time. Even when he's being awful, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's like, I mean, I'm sure we'll touch on this in a moment, but it's like, obviously, to to a great respect, um, Tim and Dawn as well, but Tim is kind of like our in, he's almost like the audience cipher. And, and that's how he feels about David. He's like, he's actually relatively kind to David, really. And, and I think that's the thing as an audience, you can kind of look at him and it's like, you you just yeah you just feel sorry for him you feel a little bit of pity for him i think it's i mean we've we've all known and encountered people like david brent yeah and most of the time you don't hate them they're the kind of people that you i've always imagined that david it, well so i'm getting into like headcanon here now but i've always imagined that yeah. david was probably he was probably actually a very good salesman you know traveling salesman he was probably actually very good at that because he is, he can be genuinely quite funny and he can be, you know, he, he's got a certain charm to him and he's relatively good at talking to, for want of a better expression, the common man. He can't, you know, it's like, and everybody thinks he's, you know, everybody thinks he's a bit of a buffoon, but I think he, I, I imagine that he was just charming enough to get along with people. And he's the sort of person that, you know, if you're at some kind of like paper merchant conference for two days in Birmingham, then he's probably a bit of a laugh, you know, in, in the bar, you don't want to spend all evening talking to him. And if you're trying to, you know, get off with Gene from accounts, you definitely don't want him <laughs> hanging around, but he's probably, you know, he's probably charming enough to have a, you know, to have a drink with. And he, you know, like he's not, an awful he's not finch basically he's not no he's not that kind no. of nasty bully bully you know he's a bit of a bully but he's more the guy well actually i mean we literally see it in episodes but he is the guy that stands beside the bully giggling yeah he's only the bully when he feels like he's getting some validation from being the bully in the yes you know yeah. or or a place he's you know where he understands i mean a good episode example of that is the quiz where yeah, yes, I love the quiz. Him and Finch, the, it's brilliant. And him and Finch team up and they're desperately trying to win this quiz. And he's very much Finch's confederate. But Finch is horrible to him all the way through. Oh, he's, yeah, you know, nasty. He bullies to Brent him. all the time. Yeah. So it's like, but then when he's not with someone like that, he he doesn't he doesn't act necessarily like a bully. You know, he doesn't necessarily bully Gareth. No. You know, Gareth becomes his stooge, but he doesn't bully in the same way that Finch bullies. And I think that's. He just ultimately, if anything, he goes the opposite way and he tries too hard to be nice and likable, you know, and then he then he gets on into these rabbit holes of saying the wrong thing and then trying to cover it up. And then, you know, desperately trying to dig his way out of a hole that he knows he's going in. <laughs> and then he's cons I love how he constantly looks at the camera. Oh, yeah. All the time in that that almost like looking for the camera to save him. Like, yes, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's so, there's so much in the way he'll look at the camera as if, or, or if he if he knows he's messed up, he looks at the camera with that sort of guilty, oh shit, kind of thing. Well, I think brilliant. The, the big thing about David Brent is, is, you know, this idea that he wants to be an entertainer and stuff is that I think that he is somebody who he wants to be seen 
but he doesn't want to be observed. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like the, the he wants to be seen by the people around him and to have an audience. But the camera isn't an audience. The camera is observation. The camera is observing him. And I think that's this thing that he is. He is nervous in front of the camera. It's like he wants to play up to the camera, but he's also nervous because he knows that it is real people at the other end. You know, and and you've got to imagine as well, like, like it's very easy to forget. It's like in in theory, in the reality of that space, obviously we're seeing everything through that documentary crew camera, but there's actually in that room with David Brent is half a dozen London BBC liberal elite types. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, people like yeah. me, basically. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like, you know, me and my colleagues are there um observing him and you know he's not stupid he he you know he there's a there's a there's a pressure that comes from that you know that you've got these kind of like these these potentially well-educated uh slightly hipster snobby bbc types just sort of stood there smiling at you while you dig this hole bigger and bigger that's that they're also probably rubbing their hands with glee at this because they know full well that they have got somebody who is an absolute nightmare well, and it's going to be common. It's going to be TV gold. You know, it's like when he, when he talks about in the, in the the specials, he, he keeps referring to it as a stitch up. And he, there are even points where he's saying, Oh yeah, there's a guy does it, does eight hours of being a good boss and like working really hard. And then I accidentally headbutt one woman and that's what they <laughs> use. Now, obviously that's a great sort of punchline and it's funny, but it's also absolutely true. <laughs> You headbutt a woman on telly and you yeah. labelled them a frat. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, I you know, I've I mean I've 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 worked in, in you know, I've worked in this kind of TV. And it's that's it's absolutely that. It sounds you know, there's a sort I mean, never anything quite as fr- from a production point of view, I've never worked on anything where it's been quite as cruel as the uh the office production team you have to imagine would be because there's, there's a certain cruelty to use all that footage of him because he's yeah, yeah. not obviously he's not doing that every day but you do when you're when you're filming someone and they suddenly do or say something outrageous you you you're just like wow that's that's episode three right there that's brilliant let's get some more of that because we're actually watching a show within a show in a way well, aren't exactly we? yeah because we're essentially watching the same thing that then he's broadcast in the world of the office. Yes. That then those characters watch as well at a later date. And then then, then that final two episodes is, the, is them having to react to that and the documentary crew understanding that, I mean, my guess would be that in the, in the fictional world of the office, that was a much bigger hit than actually it might have been initially. Like, yeah. hit with, you know what I mean? I think, I think that would have been for a, for a brief moment anyway, very well known. And then, and then it lingers on. And then that's why nobody really knows who Brent is after a while, because it, like anything, people have their five minutes of fame and then they disappear. Yeah. But I, I reckon for, for a bit, he would have been in the papers. He would have been like as the boss yeah. from hell, you know? Yeah. And and also you've got to remember the fact that the, the show, you know, the show, The Office, um, as opposed to the sitcom we're discussing, that, w- that was one show. Those 12 episodes were one show that was broadcast. And then the follow up, in in universe as it were was a couple of years later yeah yeah. whereas of course for us as viewers it was like one year two year three year three series yeah basically so yeah it is that thing of taking into account i i really like the slightly different style of the the um 
the specials, the fact that you do hear the producer talking off off camera, and the fact that they are discussing what it, you know, Tim talks about how his nan was like, you know, oh, I wouldn't have kicked the other fellow out of bed, and that kind of <laughs> yeah. thing. It's like this is just the right level of th- these characters are now self aware. Oh, there's the brilliant as well. Poor old David when he gets the phone call and he's like, "Oh, you might see me, little show on BBC Two, The Office," and the woman on the other end is like, "Oh God, you're not that awful boss, are you?" <laughs> uh, but that's exactly the, the you yeah. know, the 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 level of fame that he has. You know, it's like the guy in the in the um, in the greengrocers kind of recognizes him, but isn't sure where from. You know, the, the the woman he finally, he goes on the good date with, the nice date. Um, she didn't watch it. Uh, but then there's this other woman that he doesn't obviously go on a date with who has watched it and is like, oh, my God, that David Brent guy, he's horrendous. So it's that he got his little bit of fame, but the wrong kind of fame. Yeah, and, and that's just it, because he talks, doesn't he, about how, you know, his comedy idols are, I think he says Milligan Cleese Everett, and then the joke is Sessions. Sessions. Sessions, yeah. uh, which is a shame because poor John Sessions, <laughs> like you know, I feel for him. Um, oh yeah, like poor old, like, very funny yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, but sadly, sadly, no longer with us now. But no, like, yeah, um, but yeah, no, no, it is a funny joke. But it's it, it is that whole aspiration that he what he thinks is, and then later on at the end, you know, one of the um, I think one of the things that probably ends up getting him sacked, really made redundant, is when Neil and Jennifer find that his game show idea, which he's just been working oh, yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> and he's brilliant because he goes, David, I don't understand this. And he goes, Oh well, you know, you've got you've got they're upstairs for a yeah. bit. <laughs> he goes, No, not the game show. And, and it's brilliant because that's what he's doing. He's living, and I think he increasingly falls into this fantasy world as time goes on. As he as he starts to detach from as he, and this is before obviously the documentary goes out, but as the Swindon group are incorporated into his care and and the dynamic of the office begins to change as he as he suddenly finds himself a having a boss and you get the sense that jennifer doesn't really check on him very much when she's the gaffer really you get the sense she just leaves him to his own devices but obviously the the company hasn't been doing very well probably because of david's mismanagement in part actually You'd, you'd get the sense that maybe if he'd have been better at what he does they might have been doing a bit better but there he has to incorporate Swindon in and then he has to then he has to account he has to be accountable because Neil has to be accountable for him and then he has to prove himself with a bunch of people who don't know him who haven't got used to him and even his own group of people even the Tim and Dawn and Gareth and all those guys they don't really give a toss about him but they they're used to him and that and they are they are they're okay with the fact that he's not really going to push him at any point and it's just an easy ride really so and that's the whole thing with the Swindon group when they say, oh, we're used to actually working. We used to actually being motivated. And he doesn't know, he, he has no idea how to do that. So I think as that progresses and he finds himself more, I mean, what I find really interesting is how there's a real parallel between him and Dawn in that second season in that they're both outsiders. Dawn is an outsider with Tim and Rachel's relationship and the fact she she doesn't know what to do with that. And the fact that she knows she should be, with, she's with the wrong guy. And David is isolated because he sees Neil coming in and being the guy that he wants to be. He sees the dynamic of an office changing that he understood and he was able to control, which he can't. And he falls more and more into this fantasy of being an entertainer, of being a comedian, of being you know, a motivational speaker and all this kind of thing. And he takes his eye off the ball. And I think it's a fascinating you know, journey for him. And it would have made really good documentary filmmaking, you know, in that you see this guy really unravel. 
as as the show progresses. I, I agree absolutely. It's fascinating, and it, again, it's this sort of little. I mean, I'm saying headcanon, but I think it's kind of seeded within the episodes. I I have always imagined. It was what I was saying just before that he was probably a very good salesman. I've always imagined that he kind of he he fell upwards into the management position. Yeah, yeah. You know, there have been some point where he was the only candidate, or somebody else. Uh, you know interviewed for it and then found out he was fiddling the books or for some reason or maybe he did just do a brilliant you know interview presentation but I'm always imagined that he kind of fell into the role and actually I feel like he probably was was okay he was probably quite good at it for the first few years you know casual laid laid back chilled out entertainer but still doing the job well in part probably because he had good people working for him and then you get the mixture of like you know good people move on and maybe he gets a bit complacent but also I I can really see David Brent as someone who hit his mid to late 30s he's kind of like suddenly hits like 36 37 doesn't have a wife doesn't have kids has a has a job which is not satisfying him and he has a nervous breakdown and it's kind of it is loosely ref, you know it's it's kind of alluded to by by dawn that he had a nervous breakdown and i feel like maybe david had a nervous breakdown came back to the office you know jenny and the company were very kind to him they allowed him some time but it, his post breakdown is where he kind of like starts to lose it and the you know the 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 branch does less well and people get lazier and more complacent. That's probably the point that he takes Gareth on as his assistant to the yeah. regional manager. <laughs> and uh, I feel like David was probably at a point where they couldn't, they couldn't really fire him because he'd had a nervous breakdown, but he wasn't doing very well. Then this documentary crew comes in and for Brent, that's the point of like, this is it. This is my way out of here. This is my, yeah. Yeah. and so I, 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 I don't believe that he was always like that for 12 years. No, I yeah, don't, yeah. I don't even believe he was like that, you know, like a week before the documentary started. He was a bit like that, but this is, he's, he's exploded. But it also, it, you know, it gives, it gives Jenny, it gives the company, they have that opportunity to finally give him what they regard a very generous redundancy package. Neil even says, I mean, it's like Neil says to him a couple of times, you know, you're you're a nice guy. And I don't think that's false. I don't think Neil's just giving him the brush off. But I think there's a whole I think there's a whole backstory, a whole history to David Brent, which is fascinating and complex that we never really well, see. Isn't that the isn't that the I mean we we said similar about Basil Fawlty last time. Isn't that the way with so, so many of these characters? Oh, completely, yeah. In the, particularly the great characters in the 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 road the road to getting to where we meet them at the and they're always at this point where you know you could say the same for like Alan Partridge and where he he sort of evolves into yeah. having his own breakdown and we see aspects of that but there's always elements of Partridge you never quite know. There's, there's no element there's elements of Basil and Sybil's relationship you don't know about and you see it in a lot of these great comedies. You know, that, that journey towards this that has formed them into who they are. And you're absolutely right. Brent would have absolutely had that kind of journey. I think you're, I think that's a really good bit of headcanon. I, I think he probably was a bit like, you know, in the final two episodes where he's going back to being a salesman and mm -hmm, a traveling yeah. salesman. And there's that great scene where he's just basically selling some cleaning products. Yeah. And he's just, <laughs> 
and he's doing these going right first till last there you go get this off you only need water it's tap water that you don't need and it's a bit and the bloke's like yeah fine i'll take like 20 of them for you yeah. <laughs> but even in that he's, he's trying to really sort of present it as amazing and it's funny because it just he could just go in there and go do you want 20 cleaning products yeah cheers but he doesn't he does it in a specific way and i think so he probably you're probably right i think that kind of environment was probably better for him in many ways he gets to the point i think you're right he gets to the point of the office the documentary and this is his route to stardom this is his route to yeah you know the kind of the kind of thing he wants to do such as the 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 music video <laughs> yeah <laughs> the i mean you know it's cra- i mean I, i'm not i'm going to be completely honest i have mixed feelings about the music video i think the concept of it the idea that he would like the idea that he would waste all this money on on a a music video i can i can buy that i can go with that just i find the music video itself just a bit too sitcommy right yeah it's just yeah. a little bit too like it's funny but it's it's a little bit too you know smack the pony but actually aren't those aren't those final two episodes a little have they have other things like that like i always think the the Anne character the sort of uh, the the woman who's with Tim, who's, who Tim has to sit next to, yeah, brilliantly played. Don't get me wrong, but like she's loathsome, and she's 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 intentionally loathsome in a way that you didn't get with any of the other characters. I think she feels a bit more, yeah, you know, deliberately, I, you know. So I I have a I have a, a I don't know if a problem is the word for it, but I I have a bit of an issue with her character. Like genuinely, I do think like the second series. I think is a bit more sitcommy, and the specials are a bit more sitcommy. Not not to you know not to any detriment. Not to kind of like tear down you know the compliments that we've already given the the show in terms of its stylings. But yeah, with her character though, that's one of those characters where I feel I actually think is there's unnecessary cruelty there because she's she's really annoying and really irritating, like more so than than anyone else in the office especially because gareth has kind of like chilled out by that point yeah but then at the end where she i suppose you'd say she gets her comeuppance you know that where taffy the guy from the uh mm. warehouse um is really really vile to her yeah yeah and i actually think i i really dislike that i also dislike the fact that tim and dawn don't find it unpleasant because it's in that little moment i just feel like this entire character and this kind of like put down of this character is simply a a mouthpiece for ricky gervais being annoyed by pregnant women (laughs) and it's like like, it's Mm. one of the few it's one of the few missteps for me i think the show does have some missteps and that that her character is one of the missteps for me i think there's a there's a cruelty in the way that she's treated that I think is disproportionate to how annoying she was. I think, it, I think you're right. And it's interesting how the show does balance, I think a little bit on the line of acceptable depictions of institutionalized racism, sexism, things like that. I, I, th- I feel like sometimes, you know, or, or just loathsome male chauvinistic behavior yeah. like <laughs> yeah. that. I feel like sometimes it's, it's warranted in that 
not not the loathsome behaviour, but the the depiction of it. Because I think it's yeah. try. I do think the show is aware enough that it's trying to show the these institutionalised things that you know. Twenty years on, looking at it, particularly how much in terms of social awareness and social justice and all these things have changed now, particularly in the last few years. And I think The Office was on that tipping point of it had one foot in that progressive idea of you know deconstructing things like how the new girl Donna is sexualized immediately by everybody how you know how the the guys in the warehouse are just like saying things about how they want to shag Jenny up the arse and all this kind of thing or you know on the racism side the way that that the Indian guy Sanj immediately is sort of ma- manipulated in a way into using the p word you know so and i think it knows and Brent then has to sort of apologise. But I think on the other hand, and I don't know if this is where your issues with the show are, but on the other hand, I feel like sometimes it also has one foot in that 90s or 80s element of there's a cheap joke here. And I think it particularly is the case with with homophobic slurs. I, I, and that's the one thing I think Gervais never, has never quite managed to balance in the same way. I think when there's a lot of gay jokes and they're just gay jokes. There's not really yeah. any nuance to it, you know? So yeah, I think that's absolutely. where it falls down. I, I mean, I, I agree that 100%. I think that, you know, we we have to look at comedy in the context. It's similar as when we're talking about Faulty Towers. It's like, it's that thing of, you know, you have a show and it is saying, you know, it's trying to comment on racism, homophobia. It's trying to comment on misogyny. And it's doing it within the language and with the understanding of the time which it is made in. But also it's that thing of like, well, are these two 40-year-old white men who are writing, directing and producing the show, are they the right people to address misogyny in the workplace? And it's that thing, you know, and I, th- and I think actually, you know, they they mostly do a very good job. I think a lot of The Office, it, it really is kind of like trying to highlight the the negativity and that kind of like uh, institutional kind of like racism and, and misogyny. But definitely with kind of like, there are a lot of gay jokes that I feel like are just gay jokes. And also I think Gervais, and I know that it's Gervais and Merchant, but I think that, you know, like post office, this has kind of been proven. I think Gervais is somebody who gets a kick out of saying words that he shouldn't. Yeah, I think definitely. he's a, And like one of the things that, like even at the time, even 20 years ago, that show, they say Mong a lot. Mm-hmm. And I hate that. And, and you know, I don't know if that word was OK even then. I don't know? think it was. I'm not sure that it was. No. Uh, but they say it a lot, very casually. And, you know, even, t- you know, Tim says it and it's like, and, you know, there are other examples. Now, there are some there are some great examples of using, you know, using negative like like the the using the P word. That's that's brilliant because i think that the you know the guy who says it it's that he's he's got that sort of slightly awkward but he's allowed to say it in that context and he's actually making he's making a joke on racism because he also doesn't expect he doesn't expect the answer from brent to be oh yeah that's what i meant but it kind of you know it is what what brent meant and obviously there's the there's the n-word uh with gareth talking about uh talking about the dog which and and that's that that's fine that i think that joke works in the same way we're talking about how it works in um, faulty towers 
and it's and because the bigger joke is is that Gareth has said that and it's sort of legitimate context and Gareth especially is kind of like not that uh, because Gareth is not saying it with malice he wouldn't even occur to him that it would be offensive regardless but Brent has that moment of like oh yeah no it's okay it's in the film you can say it it's all right it's, it's that but Gervais yeah I think he likes saying he likes saying things that he shouldn't and I think that that the office does suffer with that a little bit I, th- I think I think it doesn't always get the balance right I think sometimes it's it's self-knowing and it's making a, a specific point about, you know, I mean, there's an interesting line that where later on he mentioned Sanj without mentioning his name. And he says, Oh, we had, a, we had a, he's saying, I haven't got anything against, you know, just non-white people working here. And he's like, um, he's like, we had, a, we had an Indian guy working here. Once he left, didn't like it up to him. And it's and my instinct is like, yeah, he left because he knew yeah. that he was in a, <laughs> he was in an institutionally racist place. You know, yeah. and then and that's why you get. I think the first episode of season two, merger. There's all the jokes about the black man's cock and that kind yeah. of thing, which is, which again, I think I think it works to an extent, but it almost goes to it keeps it going so much. And the idea, the ultimate point is that it's trying to point out that what Brent and Gareth are laughing at is juvenile and not funny. But at the same time, I feel like Gervais probably does think that's funny. You know, yeah, that's the so, problem. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, so it's, it's weird. You've also got this thing. It's, it's what I was saying about, you know, two, two middle-aged white men addressing the, you know, the issue is that the, the, the sort of, I know the sort of the, the punchline of it is that the black guy in the office thinks the joke's funny, but it's, it's the, the white woman who complains about it. And obviously that's making a very valid point that, you know, racism, you don't have to be the race that is being, you know, you know, you know, preyed upon to find something racist. But also I feel like there's a slight misinterpretation from from Gervais and Merchant that the idea that that, you know, a black guy going, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I think that joke's funny. It's like, yeah, but he doesn't because most most people, when they are in a work situation and they're hearing these jokes, they just they just decide to say that they find it's funny, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. because how many times, you know, just that character, that guy, how many times has he been in, in a work situation where somebody's told a slightly racist joke and it's easier for him to go, that's ah, a funny enough joke that it would be for him to go, oh, that is quite racist. I'd rather you didn't make that joke. And I think that maybe... Merchant and Gervais don't realise the the it's a far more complicated thing than this black guy thinks it's funny, um, and I don't I don't think the show really addresses that. I don't think the no. the show really address it does because they don't realise that they think that there are some black guys who think racist jokes are funny. Mm. I think that's that's mm. the sort of the problem. And 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 nowadays, I think if that was happening in a workplace, either that the person who told that joke would be in far greater trouble or the black person would turn around and say, that's racist. That's not funny. I'm reporting you. And I th- I, th- I do think that in a lot of workplaces, I think that would probably these days happen because I think so. Yeah. There is, there is more accountability for that now, which is fantastic. But I, and, and I think in a way it, 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 it allows them to get off the hook in that example, because it presents a black character who isn't really, in a way, acting as a black character would 
in some it's it's that classic yes. thing of black characters being written by white guys you know? uh, yeah and that's, yeah you know totally. and that's why you're starting to see now black comedians and black you know people like michaela cole for instance writing mm-hmm. And she's not exactly a comedian as such. She she's like a multifaceted kind sort of, of person. Yes, yeah. But she's writing comedy, and she's writing comedy for black people, which is effective because you know of those things. So it's not that I, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, they're at least attempting to address these things as opposed to just falling into that awful space. And and this yeah. is what this is what extras does in that when when extras presents an old fashioned sitcom full of all these awful things and these ridiculous tropes and and the character of Andy hates it and that you know the whole commentary of there the whole everything they write is about the process of comedy you know certainly in these two their two first two shows together the two shows they do together and in this sense it is they're at least trying to address these things within this space it's just that they they lack the nuance in order to do it well all the time but so but you know like I say the office at least has one foot in in looking at these things in the way that a lot of comedies just wouldn't have done, you know, or they would have been oblivious to back then or beforehand. Yeah. And I think, I think time is, is a big factor in, in looking at the office, like in terms of how well it's aged, I, uh, I feel like, like the core comedy of it, I think has aged really well, but for a new viewer, I don't think it's aged well at all for various reasons and it's kind of like you know we have talked about faulty towers and not to make too many comparisons but obviously faulty towers it was made in you know the mid 70s i think it is much easier for somebody say a 20 year old now to sit down and watch faulty towers and go okay well they were working the best they could in a bad system at a dodgy time in history but actually they've produced something which is for the time for the 70s this is pretty liberal forward thinking and you can you can put that context into play like really effectively because it's old because it's older it's very easy to go 1970s it's 45 plus years ago and that show is is pretty pretty liberal and trying to do and say a lot of positive things even if it doesn't always hit the mark but the office is so recent you know you've got you've got someone if a 20 year old sits down and watches the office now apart from anything else in terms of what it is or isn't saying about about race and gender apart from any of those questions and whether it does it well or effectively or is callous or cruel is the first thing you do if you're 20 and you watch that show now you say that would get him fired that would get her fired she'd be fired he'd be fired why are they what and i think it's because it does still feel very modern, it doesn't. It looks like it was filmed, you know, last week. Mm. So I think it's it's probably quite difficult to rationalise why those people weren't getting fired. And I and I think that it makes it. And again, it's like stuff. Sorry, I keep comparing it, but stuff like Faulty Towers. Well, apart from being set in the seventies, um, he owns the hotel. You know, he he owns that hotel. He's got a certain carte blanche about what he does um you know dad's army you know it's 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 the war you know they're not real soldiers so the fact that they're useless at being soldiers is irrelevant because they're basically you know local cannon fodder so of course they just keep going they're not going to get drummed out of the army because they're not really in the army whereas the office i think it's really hard for for a younger audience to look at that and genuinely to understand why those people wouldn't be fired on the spot. On the spot. I mean, it, while 
I was too young and probably you rough almost I was too young to be in the workplace properly at that point when it came out you know I was 18 19 years old I was just at uni and stuff yeah at the same time I'd been in a school environment and then in a, in a sixth form environment a college environment where if you were going around calling someone a gay lord for instance right which we would you know <laughs> and I'll, I'll hold my hands up and say that you know back then sometimes you did join in on those kind of jokes there was no there was no real system of people to you know, making you accountable for that it was just what you said people used to say things like mong or retard and it wasn't there was not the level of culpability in the same way even in schools you know <laughs> back then than there is now if now if if you if you find out that someone has been you know either racially or uh, homophobically slurring somebody else that student is in serious trouble you know and and there is a real and I work in school so I know this there is a real accountability for that now and the, and you know now you have students who are coming out as trans they're coming out as gender queer all these things that they would never have dreamed of doing in the 1990s you would you wouldn't have even dared it's you know <laughs> you wouldn't have you didn't even want people didn't even want to admit they're gay whereas now you've got kids walking around boys holding hands with boys girls holding hands with girls and they think nothing of it because we're in a culture where there is there is more acceptance at a younger age that these things are okay which is wonderful so you know sometimes it feels like we're stuck in the past but actually we have moved on quite a bit as a society in some ways oh god so, yeah and it's great to see so yeah now young people looking at this kind of thing would go yeah they'd be fired like they would never last in that job but in yeah. in in 2000 even though yeah it's the 21st century in 2000 that's not what it was like that and you know yeah. we were alive then we were young men then it was not like that and i no. think that's why the office actually is quite realistic in that sense in what it captures definitely and i mean i think obviously you know the off you know that office is is a far more kind of relaxed and casual kind of place and is you know like with any comedy it's the extreme but it's not that unreal i mean i i was i was kind of like in the workforce um, around the t- what was it I mean I guess it was 2000 yeah 2001 so I had start I mean I was at university but I'd started working I'd done a couple of jobs and uh, yeah was surprised no no not surprised that's not quite the word for it um, not not to get boring with my own backstory uh, but I was so I was home educated so I didn't go through the school system um, but I went to college then went to university and so there were certain certain elements of like hitting the workforce which I think especially back then and actually this is reflected in the office because the office is basically like a school ground that's what it really is that show but for me that was a new environment because I hadn't I hadn't been in the school environment uh, and I did do I did do yeah definitely a couple of jobs early on where it's like this is like being at a school but I've never been at a school I don't know what this is really this is really weird why this is completely inappropriate kind of stuff that people were doing by about 2010 I think things had changed massively but still in those first few years of the you know the 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 noughties I guess that was yeah it's amazing what people sort of thought was still appropriate it's funny you should mention about university though as well because I think there is a very I think this feeds into the class undercurrent or the educated class undercurrent that I think is part of the office as well which is something that isn't super apparent but it comes up particularly in the first series actually I think in the character of Ricky 
the new guy yes. who comes in, who is university educated. He says at one point, you just scraped a first. So, you know, he's, he's pretty intelligent. Yeah. And there's that whole sequence where David's trying to uh, best him on Dostoevsky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, you know, when he was imprisoned in Siberia, then every time Ricky knows a bit more and David's like, oh, and he has to just walk yeah. up and go back on Wikipedia and find something else. Now, that to me, there there is a real undercurrent of this in that this my the way I've always thought of it is I mean Tim even says that he dropped out of university yeah you know Timmy's Timmy's fundamentally lazy ultimately it's one of the reasons yes. he stays in that job because he's lazy he lives at home yeah. with his parents he hasn't ever really ever bothered to do anything with his life he's taken the easy route all the time but it haunts him existentially it haunts yeah. him because he knows he's intelligent enough to go off and be a psychologist and go to uni equally in a different sense Dawn he's smart enough that she probably should have gone to university or college and done art and gone into a career as an artist and now be making her money in that sense. But she didn't, she took the easy route, you know, and that's why they both are in tune. And that's why it becomes the, the central kind of love story of the show Mm -hmm. because they are both in that social or educated class of, in a sense together, they, they easily could have gone to uni met up and hooked up at uni, you know, and become a couple there. But they're in this office environment where they're surrounded by people who aren't like that. They're surrounded by people like Finch, who is absolutely the working class moron who can thinks he's educated, thinks he's clever and isn't at all. You know, yeah. and he's you know, he just gets by because he's so arrogant and charming in his own or ugly way. You've got people like Gareth who. And this is another thing that makes me think the show is dated in that when you look at Gareth now, he very clearly has significant additional needs and yeah that that is something that the show never really gets into but gareth i wouldn't necessarily go as far as to say gareth's autistic but i definitely think gareth has needs and tim and dawn prey on that because they know that he has no self-awareness he has no social skills and he's very easily tricked and goaded and he can be manipulated very easily and they play on that and they bully him actually they bully his you know his lack of knowledge i always find this one trick like genuinely every rewatch i kind of find myself like re-asking myself the question of whether they are actual bullies or not and and funnily like having having watched the american office i find myself readdressing that question because i i feel that in the american office the the tim and dawn equivalents are massive bullies to the point that the show sort of tries to address it at one point, but never really wants to address it because they're the heroes. But I don't necessarily feel that that they are bullies in themselves. I think this is the wider thing of like we talk about the context of when something is made, is that I don't feel like I think it would be very it's very easy to kind of like look at Gareth and say, well, Gareth, you know probably has Asperger's or some, you know, some, some level. But I think that when that show was made, that was not something that people were really aware of. And I think that Gervais and Merchant will have grown up with, with people like Gareth and nobody, you know, nobody was diagnosing these people. So there was no understanding of them. And they just thought that they were nasty, weird people. Um, because Gareth is, especially in the first series, he he is a nar- he's an unpleasant person. He's not a nice person. There's a there's a certain vileness to him. 
not the same, not in the same way as, as Finch. I think Finch is just a complete shit. Um, because he knows, he knows he, exactly. what he's doing. That's the thing. Exactly. Um, or Lee. Lee is just a nasty, <laughs> nasty guy. But Gareth is a weird kind of, and I, I think that the show, the show thinks Gareth, and, and obviously he's, he's self, obviously he lacks self, I'm trying to articulate it. He lacks self-awareness, which is why it's so easy for, for Tim and Dawn to tease him. But I think that the show doesn't realise that that is out of his hands uh, because the showmakers don't realise, or at that point in, in time, didn't realise that people like that were suffering with something that was out of their hands. If, does that make any sense? Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. And so I think it's like we wouldn't we wouldn't write a character like Gareth today because we know that people like Gareth probably have additional needs and actually need. And also people you don't necessarily get people as bad as Gareth because they are getting the additional needs that allow the additional help rather that allows them sort of like nurtures them uh, and allows them to sort of, you know, function more effectively and, and you know and and and, and be happier people because I think Gareth's not very happy but I always think it's it's fascinating because I feel like Gareth could and would and probably ultimately is be a, a sort of a decent nice person because it's like well maybe if Gareth's boss had been Neil Gareth's talents would have been nurtured and he would have learned that these jokes and these comments and saying this kind of thing about women is unacceptable and gareth probably because by the time we get to the specials he's actually quite he's he's quite different by the specials yeah yeah like stuff stuff like the agenda is kind of like funny and it's silly and it's petty and tim wants to add his thing to the agenda and gareth won't let him because the meeting's already started and that's sort of petty and and jobs worthy but in terms of actually being the boss he's not doing a bad job he's far more self-aware like the whole stuff where brent is just turning up and gareth's like should have called ahead yeah but you should have called yeah. ahead and he stops <laughs> not gonna stand- call ahead yes i mean you should call ahead and he's like standing up to him a lot more even when he first sees dawn and he comes over and he gives a, actually a very tender hug because he's sort of learning how to be a better person so i think that but sorry, to, to 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 double back on that, I I never quite feel like Tim and Dawn are fully bullying him, simply because I think he, and again we've got to imagine you know there's there's been a sort of a build up to this point the relationship especially if Gareth has been given this faux power in the last year or so since Brent has had a breakdown or what have you that Gareth is actually he's quite unpleasant. And I suspect that from a Tim and Dawn point of view, they're actually retaliating to his behavior. Cause you think about in the second series, the way he talks to Rachel, again, we're talking about, you know, fired on the spot today, but the way he talks to Rachel about, you know, I uh, won't go in there, sloppy seconds, all this kind of stuff. It's like, that's, that's not a very nice person. So if you see, if you saw that scene first, and then you saw Tim playing a prank on him. You'd quite happily, in the narrative, say, "Well, he kind of deserved that for being such a dick." But that, but that, that, and that's what the show does, though. It sort of by Gareth being such an idiot and saying some awful things and being particularly misogynist. The idea is that we're supposed to enjoy Tim and Dawn's behaviour because he's getting his comeuppance in a way. Yes. But yeah. At the same time, I think you're probably right in that Tim and Dawn aren't necessarily out and out bullies. 
but they're but it's the general sort of culture of the office I think that Brent has fostered, which is it's okay to take the piss out of people. It's okay yes. to you know prat around and you know all this. And you know Brent will come out and see these people doing these kind of things. He doesn't go, guys, what are you doing? You're supposed to be, you know, he's there going, oh look at the jays and the jelly and yeah. You know, it's that it's that moment as well where like. Tim's talking about dignity and they're literally pulling the pants down of that random office guy and exposing these, exposing him. Right. I mean, it's yeah. basically a sexual assault, really. You know, if, if you yeah, think, I... and that's Brent, Brent's there going, ha ha ha. And he's pointing at these penis and all this kind of thing. You think, I mean, this, that to me, it's an extreme. I can't, I can't imagine that was happening in most normal offices like this. That feels like an extreme, but you know what I mean? It's that, that kind of culture. Yeah. That's in that... there. Well, that that moment, funny enough, that's on my you know my little list of kind of like missteps. I find I find that a, a narrative misstep, uh, only because it's like all the team, like all, all of the the you know so many of the the team in the office are taking part in that. But there's been nothing to suggest that these other workers would do anything that extreme up until that point. I I, I find that a slight like narratively speaking, a slight misstep um because you've got the guys who basically have kind of like had their heads down doing their work nodding at brent and giving him a smile when he's trying to be funny suddenly they're pulling a guy's trousers off and it's like i feel like that's a big leap it's it's asking you to buy into the broader you know extremes of this office culture that i think are, are sometimes taken a bit too far and i think so i think that's where tim and dawn sit in that they i think they're doing it more for themselves to be a pair enjoying something together definitely more than they are necessarily trying to hurt gareth he's just an easy target yeah you know? and i th- i think if you if you look especially with tim the way tim interacts with gareth uh, uh, at other times is is genuinely quite sort of like you know friendly and and you know he's quite you know you can see this frustration in the kind of person that gareth is but i think tim i mean tim is someone i, th- I suspect that he you know, he does these childish pranks and then he, uh, I think he sort of like beats himself up about it yeah, afterwards. probably. I think mm. one of the, like a genuine problem, and this is coming back to something we were saying earlier, a genuine problem with the Tim and Dawn stuff with Gareth is that as much as it's sort of like, it's about them bonding and Gareth brings it on himself, maybe even deserves it. Tim and Dawn don't do it to anybody else. And there's even some implication that, that Tim... You know, there's some affection for, for Gareth from Tim. I think it's like, you know, it's not like they just hate the guy. Mm, but mm. the problem is, is that the majority of their pranks are gay jokes. Mm-mm. And it's yeah, what yeah. we were saying before. So, yeah. And I think if, if their pranks were a little bit, if they were a little bit broader in their, in, in their subject matter, it might not feel quite as... It, it, uh, it might not feel quite as bullying because it's a bit distasteful. Even even twenty years ago, it's like it's very it's very easy to giggle at that kind of like oh if you if your men were being attacked would you pull them off you know and all this kind of like mm-hmm. you know would you would you take them from the rear or take them from the front yeah. and all that kind of stuff and it's like it's sort of schoolboy giggling yeah. stuff yeah but it's like you know what I I'd rather they were pranking him in a way that wasn't so homophobic. And it, and I and I think that I think that does it. It's detrimental to the characters of Tim and Dawn, and I think less about the pranking of Gareth and more about 
the yeah the the massive homophobia. I think that's probably true. Yeah, but also talking in terms of like the homophobia that that we're talking about, it's like I think it's actually really telling in terms of that wider spectrum of what was accepted, and you know maybe Gervais and Merchant kind of like going for certain cheap gags, is that Neil Neil is meant to be like the nice guy, the cool guy. He's the sort of the you know he's a bit more liberal, a bit more metropolitan. He comes in and his introduction, he basically does a stream of gay jokes. But he's seen as being really cool. And I, I, weirdly that, you know, David kind of like then comes in and he does his kind of like, you know, oh, I've never come over a little queer. But I don't find that the, the joke any worse than Neil's kind of, you know, oh, David's looking forward to having some new men under him. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Because I actually, I think the show has two, like, Brent is obviously like it's cringe it's cringe comedy it's cringy and and Brent is like always the boss from hell he's super cringy but I think that Neil is massively cringy uh in a completely different way it's like I know that in comparison to Brent Neil is kind of like cool and he's sexy and he's good looking and he's a nice guy but he's not that nice and he's he's actually quite a bully towards David especially in the specials. And I know there's some water under the bridge. David tried to sue them and all this to tribunal. So I get that there can be more tension, but uh, he's quite a bully. He's quite misogynistic. He does the gay jokes and he comes, he does his, his dance in, in the charity episode, which is cringe as fuck. Oh. <laughs> and even, but it's like, it but we're kind of, we're followed up with David. So everyone like remembers the, you know, Brent's kind of like, duh, 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 and all that kind of thing. <laughs> and Brent, Brent kind of like takes, takes the attention away. But actually Neil is far more realistic. We are far more yeah. likely to have worked and work with people like Neil, yeah. who are nice enough, have a drink within the pub, but can probably be quite cutthroat and yeah. is a little bit misogynistic and is actually super his jacket i know the joke is that david gets a cheap version of neil's jacket but neil's jacket is cringy it's like it's like come on neil <laughs> yeah david uh, uh is, is that uh, armani sergio Giorgini. yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're right you're right it it is it is it is cringe you're right neil is interesting in that yeah you you are you are supposed to you're supposed to feel David's frustration at him because he is this attractive metropolitan guy that people find charming and everything like that. But he does show his true colors. Absolutely. And there is always that river. I mean, look at how close he is with Finch. You know, that's that's the other joke in that, you know, he's best. He's really Finch's best mate, not David. David thinks he is. He pretends to be, he wants Finch's validation, but Neil's got that, you know, and Finch actually respects Neil and he, you know, all this kind of thing. And they, and they end up and turning their both their fire onto David ultimately. So you know, yeah, Neil is a bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing there, and I think he's he's a very he's a he's a well developed character in that sense actually, because you almost don't see him coming at points like that. So it's he's it's interesting. He he makes David more sympathetic. So when you Definitely get to the so when you do get to that genuinely heartbreaking moment in interview, the second series finale, where David oh. says, "Don't make me redundant," like. You you can you understand where that's come from because of all the animus that's built up towards Neil. That then as that also as is David's own fault because he's he's not he's not responded to ne- the threat of Neil in the way he should have done, mm-hmm. you know. And then he he he, he only realises that when it's too late and he says I'll work twice as hard, you know. And he means it. That is yeah. the only only one of two times 
the veil slips from David. That's the only one of two times that he stops playing David Brent. The the one time is when he tells Finch and Neil to fuck off at the end. Which is so satisfying. Which is wonderful. That's a wonder. Couldn't be better payoff. Absolutely and the, and the, the only other time is when he, he breaks down and he says, please yeah. don't make me redundant. That is the real David. Both of those times. Every other time he's on screen or he's talking, he's playing David Brent. I think. Yeah. And that's that's the brilliance of, of this show. And, you know, ultimately, they are all playing characters in many ways, you know, in their own different way. They're all playing versions of themselves for these cameras. And, and it's all about perception, really. So, guys, it's worth confessing that we have a bit of a production behind the scenes for you because we had to stop recording at this point, talking about The Office, and instead of going away for like half an hour and coming back or, you know, for a few hours and coming back or even the next day continuing and carrying on, we went for a good two months before we actually carried on talking about The Office. <laughs> so so um, you'll have to forgive the fact we sound slightly different now and um, we've maybe like, you know, we've regenerated into different versions of ourselves over these last two months. So that's why we suddenly sound very different, but we're going to carry on with the conversation anyway <laughs> from where we, where we were before uh, and try and finish this up. So here we go. So let's talk then a bit about Tim and Dawn because we've sort of mentioned a little bit about this before as we've been talking and the fact that their love story is one of the key components of the show. You know, if you've got, on the one hand, you've got Brent and all of the things we've talked about before and, and all those different themes going on, the Tim and Dawn story is a really core part of of this, of this show really, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's the, it, it's the emotional core. And that's not to say that the other characters don't have emotional depth, especially as, as the series kind of goes on and we get into the specials, but... Tim and Dawn, because they are, you know, we've kind of said they're they're like our our every man, every woman, our every peoples. So we recognise them, and maybe we do recognise those uh, those slightly unrequited relationships, or those kind of like that that burgeoning romance. There's something there's something actually really very pure about their relationship. I think in the middle of all the the shit that goes on in the office. There's something so sweet and relatable uh, that it, yeah, it really is the 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 emotional core. I think without the show being a massive, fo- you know, it's not a romance show. It's not a, a, you know, it's not like Gavin and Stacey, which is all about that kind of, that that romance. It's like it it feels really subtly like it's a almost like a side plot. It's like you know we're focused on Brent so much, and their relationship is just kind of happening you know adjacent to that to the side it's not quite in the background but it's it's not our main focus but it doesn't feel like a sort of a clunky b plot that we that we jump back to it's just nicely ticking over and then every so often you have just an incredible moment whether it's you know tim's you know when he thinks that dawn's broken up with lee and he kind of asks her out and she's almost instantly she's like i'm with lee and he's like yeah yeah as a mate as a mate it's like there's something so real about that, but just nicely sort of dropped in there, or or their their little red nose day kiss, the kiss for the pants, insanely well, insanely well performed moment. So I think it it really gives us something. 
it almost gives us something nice in the middle of David Brent and Gareth and Finch and 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 the misery that's being you know rained down on everyone it kind of gives us something nice and something hopeful yeah and and I think real in a different way as in I think that yes there are definitely people like Brent and Gareth and 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 people like that but they are to some extent accentuating for comic effect I think whereas Tim and Dawn feels like something that you would you could have had it happen in in a workplace like that. These two people who are in some ways kind of in similar places. I mean, obviously Tim's you know lives with his parents. He's uh, single, you know, for most of the show, and he's reached a point in his life where he's hit a bit of a wall. And Dawn is in theory got stuff to look forward to. She's engaged, you know, she's got a boyfriend, long term relationship. But they're both unfulfilled. You know, Dawn is is in a relationship that really she knows deep down isn't right for her with but with a guy who takes her for granted, and she's low. She's got no self esteem. She's really low in confidence. She doesn't really believe in herself, even though she has this really, you know, strong rock talent as an illustrator. And she's never had anyone really to cheer her on and champion her, and she's been relegated to this this kind of role. I mean, I. I always thought that, you know, they were both, they're both examples, I think, of the kind of youth who grew up in the 90s because they, you know, they're they're like the 80s and the 90s anyway, because we can assume that they're in their 20s at this point. Tim's like, well, Tim, yeah, he has his birthday, doesn't he? So he's, he's about 30. So they grew up in the 80s as kids and then the 90s as young adults. And I don't know, it was... So they're a little they're a little bit older than than you and I. They're like ten years ahead, but there is that still that sense of that they 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 thought it was all going to work out. You know, they they assumed at that point that everything was going to be fine. That they would they'd get married, they'd have kids, they'd have a good job, and that they'd be they'd be satisfied. Yeah, okay, they have a job that is fairly secure in a workplace where they're not pushed, they're not motivated, and. They're ran by a guy who just wants everyone to have a laugh and, you know, takes everything for granted himself. But I think they, they, they've become lazy in work and life to the point that they look at each other as something else, as something more. And that's where the sort of what becomes the romance and starts as the friendship lies is that they are the only really, the only thing really in that sort of space in their lives that they look forward to, you know, seeing each other, interacting with each other. And I think that's, that's very realistic. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you. I've had the odd job where there've been one or two people there, whether it's romantic or not, who I've, who have kept me going sometimes. who have made me think, Oh, cause they're here. I can just back cope with this awful place. <laughs> oh, um, undoubtedly. Yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. so it's real. There's a real, there's a reality to this relationship that I really think is so unique and 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 leaps off the screen in a way that you don't see in many other, not just comedies but dramas generally. I would say. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I I think it's I think you sort of like hit the nail on the head. It's it's about this sort of. They, I mean, I can't be bothered with all the kind of Gen X boomers, all this kind of stuff. That's all just like bollocks labeling for the newspapers but in that general sort of like <laughs> term of things 
Yeah, we're, we're a little bit younger than them, but we're the kind of tail end of that Generation X. They're a little bit older than us, so they're the, the kind of like smack bag in the middle of that Generation X. They are people who would have seen their parents comfortably, easily, got a job, well paid, buy a house, meet the right person, settle down, have a kid. They, they've seen that happen, and then suddenly that's not happening easily for them. And it's this this sense of like laziness, very relatable to 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 maybe not quite our generation because we are a little bit younger and we were maybe a bit more aware that how much we were going to have to struggle for stuff. But that generation of kind of like, why is this not coming easy? Why am I not happy? And then to have that, because I suspect I always feel like, again, it's this kind of headcanon, but I always feel like Tim's parents are probably the kind of very, very nice people that whilst they believe they're supporting him, they're actually enabling him. Yeah, so it's definitely. this idea, I may have already said, you know, when, when Tim, I'm sure when Tim calls up and says, I think I'm going to quit university, his mum says, well, whatever makes you happy, and you can always come back yeah. here. So yeah. that allows yeah. him to quit, you know. And, and, and I think this is where it comes in nicely with the two of them, that I think that Tim is somebody who, who probably had the support that he needed to, to sort of go on and do and become better. Uh, but squandered that support. And Dawn is somebody who who doesn't have that support. Nobody supported her. So there are all these beautiful moments, which I think are so real and, and perhaps unique to this show, or not entirely to this show, but like you say, unlike most dramas and sitcoms, you don't see that in the romance, which are the moments where they truly support each other. And when they don't support each other, it crushes them. So there are it's a little bit of backwards and forwards. It's like Tim... You know, Tim says quite blankly that he does not want to take a promotion. He doesn't want to stay working there. It's the last thing that he wants, but he likes being there because of Dawn. And then Dawn kind of says that she's planning to, you know, to up sticks or go or whatever it is at that point that she's planning to do, you know. Um, and Tim kind of realises that, you know, Dawn's not going to be around all the time. She is actually engaged. I'm not going to be able to see her. And he just kind of thinks, well fuck it, I'm going to take that promotion. And there are little moments backwards and forwards between them where it's like they sort of get disappointed, you know, and, and Dawn wants to, you know, get back into into the art and kind of wants to, you know, to progress. But when she sees that Tim is happy just to stay in the office, she feels despondent and she's like, well, if, if Tim can't make anything of himself, I can't make anything of himself. And there's this just lovely, lovely, realistic backwards and forwards that that it never feels it it never feels forced and you know and and I, i'm trying not to compare too much to the to the american version but you know you have the similar characters in the american version but theirs is a far more conventional you know how all these kind of like cute moments and it's it's far more conventional and less rich and I think I think most sitcoms, you know, even well, especially sitcoms which are focused on a romantic storyline. You know, I mentioned Gavin and Stacey. It's like, to be fair, Gavin and Stacey has a great kind of weirdly sort of like relatable quirkiness to it. But it's still fundamentally a kind of, a you know, meet cute style, you know, rom-com. Whereas this is just kind of like it's just it's 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 sort of honest and relatable. And yeah, I've I've. I've had those kind of those sort of relationships, whether romantic or just friendships. I've had those relationships spring up in in workplaces, and and it it's it's nice when they do. It's it's so it's yeah. lovely. And at the same time, pure torment 
in a way as well. In oh. The, <laughs> in that, you know, you feel the points, everything, the beauty of all this, and it's cuts across the whole show, but particularly with Tim and Dawn, it's in what's not said. And it's in the looks, it's in the way the camera captures the moments where you'll just have Dawn staring into space, looking at Tim, thinking about him, and then he, he turns that way and she just takes stuff out of it. And that they never quite see half the time what the other one is. And and the, and the only time we know that is when they talk to the camera. You know, it would have been very different, I think, had you not had the confessional aspect of the office where they're talking to camera, whether they're meaning to expose what they really think or not. Quite often, Tim will talk to the camera about how he feels, you know, or he'll make excuses for everything. You know, he'll be like, oh, well, you know, it's not going to happen. Or, oh, well, you know, you got... And then you have that heart-stopping moment at the end of series two where he, he thinks, fuck it. And he takes the takes the thing off and the camera follows him and he tells her. And the beauty, the brilliance of that is that you don't hear it. And I, I think that is astoundingly it good storytelling. destroys me every time. It's superb. It's a superb it's so use good. of the, the format, yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. And... You know, there is a similar moment at the end of the second series of the the American Office with Jim and Pam, the versions there, and I and I I do love that romance, and I'm I, I am watching the Office right now, the American Office right now, and I'm really invested. And I love those two, and it's great, but it is different. And in that scene, you do see him say it to her, he kisses her, and then it goes its own way. Whereas this is more powerful because it's brief, and and you don't hear it, and you have to imagine in your mind what Tim would have said. And what Dawn would have said, and then he just comes back on, puts it back on, and he says, oh yeah, she said no. And your heart just collapses in its Oh, it, uh, It's uh, like being punched in the f- every yeah. time I watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is, because you feel it so much, and it is that, tr- it, it's our sort of greater knowledge as, audi- as an audience, understanding the bigger pieces of the whole, having seen what he says and what she says, and their relationships with different people, whether it's his with Rachel, who he ends up dumping because he wants to be with Dawn or, you know, hers with Lee. And we know full well that they both love each other, clearly, and they can't say it to each other. And the the heartbreaking aspect of it is on two levels for, for us as an audience. And, and it, it, it's so good. I mean, it is... And that's why also the end, the end point of this, which I think on, in, on one level could be seen as a, as a, as a sentimentalist cheat when Dawn comes back at the end of the very <laughs> last episode, I'm, I was fine with that. You know, I think you could have ended it where she goes off and it's tragic and she marries this guy and she loves them. You could have done that easily, but the fact she comes back, it is just a moment of pure joy that has been so well earned throughout the whole show. I think it, you know, and, and, and ultimately the whole show ends ends on a beat of hope. And I think that's a credit to, Gervais and Merchant there because it it is it is essentially the descent of people this show over those two seasons it is a slalom downwards for Brent particularly so to actually have in the at the end of that Christmas special that beat that you know these guys probably they might be okay even though yeah Brent is going to mess things up probably down the line he fundamentally he can cope without being in that office and Tim and Dawn will presumably leave, go off and do their own thing. You know what I mean? It, it, everyone sort of ends in a place where they're okay, yeah, it, which is good. Yeah, it absolutely. And I, it, you know, I, I, I remember watching it quite vividly and it was all, 
it sort of hits that point where <laughs> where Dawn is in the car and driving away. And there's a bit of voiceover about how, you know, I think is at that point that Tim's kind of saying how, you know, who knows where I'll be, you know, 10 years from now, you come back. And I remember watching it first time and I was just like, obviously my stomach was just like, (laughs) oh my God. But at the same time, at the same time, I was just like, yeah, no, that's, that's fine. That's, that Mm. is how this should end. Um, Because, you know, that's, that's the realistic, that's the very British way. And I'm very happy with that. Yes, that's okay. That's okay. And then we cut back to the party, and she walks in. And I'm just yeah. like, yeah, fuck, yeah. yes. It's just it that real. And still now, every time, every time, it just absolutely, absolutely beautiful moment. And I think that so, it is so very earned. And I think that they're both they're they're both fantastic actors. And I think I, I always feel like Lucy Davis in particular. Like throughout the show, she has this this incredible physicality, like the way that she like with her hands, the way that she moves around Tim and she's always almost touching him. Like like if you what if you watch carefully, like the amount of times that Dawn moves past and her hands, they sort of like move out. and They almost it's like almost stroke his hair, almost touch his shoulder, like this very this very beautiful sense of like this desire for the physical interaction and just sort of holding back it's like i mean they're both they're both fantastic they're both so good uh you know they've they've both gone on to have fantastic careers which they absolutely deserve and it's just uh yeah it's so it's so it's so satisfying and unexpected but earned yeah totally in a way though i still feel that even for martin freeman this will be the roles that they are they go down in history for in many ways i I still feel that you know for all of everything else they've done over the years there is something about this and and you know you'll say the same absolutely the same for gervais as well you know they'll they never they'll never really top this i think for pure in anything they do for pure real heart-stopping drama and comedy and truth that when the when the show is at its best, for all of the points it does have flaws, as we've talked about, when it's at its best, I've rarely seen anything do any do it like this and, and, and do it with such perfection in terms of how it puts things across that still works 20 years later and will work 50 years later, I think, to be honest. I don't I don't see this show ever on that level aging in 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 that way and stopping the effect it feels. I think on a on a purely emotional primal level this you will you could watch this in a hundred years i think and you would you would it would register in the way it should and i think that is astonishing really i don't think that will ever that will ever go away i think it will obviously date in other ways and it will look old-fashioned and you know various things but the core truth of it will remain and that and not many comedies can ever say that not many dramas can ever say that but i really think the office will to be honest yeah, I, 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 I agree completely. And I think it is part of the, you know, it's it it's not, it wasn't exactly the first, but it was definitely part of the, you know, part of the vanguard of this new wave of kind of like almost, almost comedy drama, mm. but but mm. not, you know. And I, and I think that it's like a lot of these, sh- you know, a lot of the kind of the post office shows, if you like, 
are going to have a, a stronger timeless quality because they are focused on narrative and drama and performance in a way that some earlier sitcoms not to their detriment but were not necessarily as focused and i think yeah like like you say 30 50 years from now the office it may be a little bit dated there it may be a little bit dated here there may be the odd gag that people find inappropriate but the core narrative story and and the truth of the characters and where they where they start and where they end up and the emotional response you have to that, that's not going to go away. That's not going to change. And it is testament to, you know, to Gervais and, and Merchant that they, you know, and I don't think anything else they've created comes close, you know, together or separately. No, I, I think the, the, the only thing I think that got close to this that I think will age, but I still think is powerful, is the speech at the end of Extras that Gervais gives on Celebrity Big Brother. I think that... Is and we may do extras one day down the line, hopefully, because that is a great show in many ways. It's not as good as The Office, but it is. It is. It's not no, but it's a very strong follow up. Yeah, it is. It's it's excellent in its own way, and that speech he gives at the end is excoriatingly true. Uh, whether it will, I don't think it'll stand the test of time in the same way as The Office, but it it was powerful stuff, and it's still it's a brilliant piece of drama, really, within a comedy. I think, I mean, that they've only done those two shows together and you get a lot of people suggest that really Merchant was the, was the, was the genius here, more so. And that once, to be, or, or, once, once he stopped working with Gervais, Gervais's output just plummeted. And I think, I think there is truth to that, but at the same time, Gervais, uh, Merchant hasn't really done anything brilliant on his own either since. So it's a little bit like, are these two at their best? Well, maybe if you take Cemetery Junction away, <laughs> the film they made, yeah. that, that wasn't good. But on television, are they at their best when they're together writing as a team? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is it's a contentious question. I was, I was going to say, I, I, I feel like you are, are unfairly forgetting Life is Short. True, actually, which, which, the, which was the, only one season, wasn't it? Yeah, it's like we got sort of one series and a couple of Christmas specials. You're right, uh, you're right. Which, which that, is, that which show, is uh, that show to its awful. credit is. <laughs> well, I, I think it was okay. I thought it was okay. It's not anywhere near as good as the other two. It it wins for me though for the Liam Neeson scene, which is easily one of the funniest things well, I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know what it is, and, and obviously we're we're not we're not really we're not talking about that show, so I won't digress too much. But it, it's actually really interesting if you look at Life Is Short after so the, the the Office, which is which is seminal, which is you know like changed the face of comedy, yada yada yada, all the things we've just talked around for over an hour. Um, then you have Extras, which is an interesting, basically an interesting leveraging of their newfound. Um, celebrity and power you know they sort of they they use that to create something that they couldn't have created before then and then life is short is basically a sort of a lazy amalgamation of the two uh, and you kind of got you know you've got got Warwick who is basically playing a sort of a, a poor man's David Brent slash Andy Millman and then you have all these celebrity guests but but all the cool celebrity guests just happen in merchant and gervais's office yeah it's like they don't do anything so it's a weird it's a weird i think it's a, a really weird thing that they create two relatively original interesting shows 
and then they just do the laziest, cheapest thing. Even down to like they they used to go on about the fact that they wouldn't use cheap puns and cheap gags, and then they do a show called Life, Life is Short, short like, about Warwick Davis. It's like. <laughs> Yeah, but I think yeah, yeah. And, and you know what? Like they they did some they did a Christmas special or two where they kind of they actually redeemed it, and that I thought was a much stronger product than the actual series, which was quite unpleasant. But I think it's really interesting within this conversation of are they better together or are they better separately that they kind of made two great things, and then they made a a weird thing which was fine, but like really traded off the previous two things that they did, and then. Yeah, I mean, it's like merchant merchants' output has been much smaller, I think, than than Gervais since you know since sort of not working together. And they produced a couple of the, uh, you know, the kind of the the Carl Pilkington things. They've kind of produced a couple of those, but it's not quite the same as 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 writing and working together in that way. Uh, merchant weirdly seems to have done a lot more kind of like you know sort of like cameo acting. He kind of like turns up in a lot of people's projects. Um, sort of playing himself uh, and that he he did the um, you know he directed Fighting With My Family which was um, quite quite a sort of a fun sweet oddly old-fashioned feeling kind of a kind of a um, film um, but at this point in time though I almost would rather see Stephen Merchant not doing much than Ricky Gervais <laughs> doing what he's doing because Gervais basically is He's done, he's done very little. I think this is part of the reason. I know that there's no animosity between them, but I know that one of the reasons that Merchant doesn't want to keep working with Gervais at the moment is that Merchant doesn't want to keep making TV and films mm. about Ricky Gervais. Mm. Like, you know, Gervais wants to be in everything and that's fine, but I don't think he's a versatile enough actor to be in as many things as he's, he's in. You know, it's like Derek. I w don't even want to talk about Derek. That's yeah. just we should one that's day. Just, I think. I, think I, I mean, I think we I, should I, we should definitely talk about it. Yeah. In, in its own right, because yeah, there's a lot to say about that. Certain things definitely. that I that I probably shouldn't talk about if I want to keep working in the industry. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's yeah. like like Derek was the uh, was an interesting project. Uh, his current thing that Gervais has got going on on on. Netflix, I've watched it. It's okay, but it suffers a bit too much from him wanting to, you know, preach and everything. And and you know the the Gervais, the sorry, the David Brent movie, which I think was a big signifier of where. I mean, yeah, cemetery. Oh, you know, yeah. Just draw a line under Gervais post <laughs> post extras. <laughs> I think that he's produced a lot of work that's just kind of mediocre and the more he produces the more you you question whether merchant was the was the true talent but i think as you were as you were getting at before i think it's less about merchant being the true talent and it's about them just being a perfect team together they work so well together and perhaps you know you know we don't want to project onto their personalities too much but in terms of what they they present outwardly perhaps it's merchant who brings the humility to what they're producing that that maybe Gervais doesn't isn't able to and Gervais let rip with everyone you know at his beck and call telling him how great he is perhaps that's how you end up with you know with with Derek or you know the invention of lying and what have you uh, 
and perhaps Gervais just needs a merchant. He needs someone like that who can just say, you know, can't do it, Ricky. It's not, not funny. Don't do that. No way. Maybe he needs that. I think he probably does, really. I think so. And I think there's a really interesting episode that maybe we could do, particularly on, on the on Extras and Life's Too Short, being part of their trilogy about fame. Because they're all they are all connected. You know, even the mm. office. The office might seem different. Yeah. Because it's not set in the world of, of television, but it kind of is, as we've talked about, in a in a different way to those shows. This isn't one festooned with celebrity cameos, but yeah, you know, although well, mind you, you get Howard from the Halifax adverts in you know the final episode, so you know that's not. That's... <laughs> you do. <laughs> um, but, uh, that was a good year yeah, for Howard. Year for Howard. Uh, who gives you extra? But um, <laughs> you have. God, that's an old callback, isn't it? But uh, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of interesting stuff to say about. So maybe we should do a follow up one day about that because I do think their their mindset on fame is interesting together. And since then. They have kind of explored different things, uh, but it, yeah, you're right. It does feel like Gervais, in many ways, is playing. He's always played variations of himself, but when he's not tethered to anyone else, I mean, Afterlife for me, I watched one series of that, and that was enough. Like it, it felt like he was having a breakdown on screen, and and I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. I, I didn't understand the 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 love of that at all in any way. I don't get it, but it's fair enough. It's not for me. It's it's for for those, you know, and it, it, it's I think. The, uh, well, the David Brett movie as well, actually, while, while you mentioned that, Life on the Road, which came a few years after, the, about 10 years after The Office or something like that, I think. Quite a while afterwards. It was about that, yeah. Um, was fine. It wasn't nearly as bad, I think, as it could have been. But I, I, No, I, I was, I was pre- pleasantly surprised, yeah. It was all right, to be fair. It made me laugh at points. But it was just an extension of the whole of that one scene in the episode Training where he sings <laughs> Free Love on the Free Love Freeway. That, that's it. That, that's, it's just that. In a movie, yeah, it 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 was. I mean, it was basically the sort of the the first half of the first Christmas special episode, yeah, yeah. extended to sort of you know ninety minutes, yeah, yeah. and and uh, yeah, exactly, and yeah, it, what it was, it was fine, but he 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 was really it it really kind of like just rehashes the the growth and the experience that Brent has in the Christmas special. It doesn't. No, do anything fresh. It didn't, on it didn't you. do anything fresh, and it, and it also shows that in many ways, and we've we've said this before. We uh, it, 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 he Brent works best when he's in that office with that collection of people, and that you take him away, and it's not the same. And I think that's something that you see a lot of the time in 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 comedies when they try and extend things too far, you know. And and that that's definitely the case. It wasn't terrible, but it's it's it, Brent is not a. Brent he might be the star of The Office, but he is part of a bigger whole in that show. And I think you you can't do with him what you do with Alan Partridge, where you can move him into different situations with different people. I was just going to say, yeah, it's it. This is the problem. I think that I think that Gervais thinks he's got a Partridge, no, which, which no, he, he doesn't. doesn't. He, he doesn't have an Alan Partridge. He he has a you know he, he has he is a Captain yeah. Peacock yeah. basically. You know you couldn't you couldn't do a sitcom about Captain Peacock you know, hanging out, <laughs> you know, going to the job centre. It has to, it, that has to be that core group of people in basically that setting. Um, and it's the same, it's the same with Brent because you take him out of that and he has no, he, he loses meaning. He just become, you know, he just becomes a, a knobhead sat in a travel tavern 
uh, you know, on his on his way to a gig. It's that he, he loses any context and he loses he loses his humanity, to be honest, without those other people around him. Yeah. And, you know, that film reaches for sentimentality in order to get that, you know, and, and it, but it rehashes everything. It rehashes a tentative romance with a, 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 a quite a meek woman. It rehashes the, the idea of getting friends. It does all of that. It just rehashes, like you say, that final couple of episodes of The Office on big screen format with a few songs. And that's that's basically it. So uh, let's let's talk. That's sort of part of the legacy. Let's talk a little bit about the legacy then before we go. And and obviously we mentioned the American Office before. Uh, that's something that I hadn't started watching when we recorded the first part of this episode. <laughs> actually, and I have since. Yeah. Um, and I'm now uh, about uh, two and a half seasons in, uh, and and really really enjoying it. It 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 was the classic. And I remember years ago watching the very first episode of The American Office, which is essentially the same script as the pilot for The Office, the British Office, reworked for the character of Michael Scott, played by Steve Carell, and the characters in that office environment, which looks very similar in a similar back-end town in Pennsylvania, Scranton, you know, a slough comparative. And it, it is it, they just try and, in that first six episodes, they port in a lot of the same sort of scenarios and jokes from, but particularly in that first episode and it's it's very average but then from season two onwards from what i've seen it very quickly kicks into its own rhythm when it's when it abandons having to cleave too heavily to the original script now we we probably will do an episode i think one day on translations from british to american sitcoms because they it is a mind it's a minefield isn't it and there's been ton- oh just red dwarf alone yeah. just like <laughs> There's been tons, absolutely tons of them over the years. Do you think this is a is a successful one? Because this came this came about two. It started about two years after the British Office ended. Two thousand five, the American Office started. By that point, the Office in Britain and Gervais had been huge, an absolute sensation across both sides of the pond. You know, Gervais even starred in Alias as an Irish terrorist because J.J. Abrams loved The Office. Like that's how bonkers that that was. But yeah, so Gervais was was big deal, you know. At this point, The Office was massive, and then so they re, they re, repurpose it for America. Does it work, Rob? In your opinion? Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and <laughs> I'm gonna try and keep that my answer to that short. But it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a twisty one for me. I think as an adaptation of the British Office, I actually don't think it works. I, I but we we talking we are talking of some definition you know like the first the very first season second season i know that you're around the the third now where it does sort of become its own thing so i think as a sitcom in its own right after it completely gets rid of the shadow of the uk version it becomes its own sitcom and it, and it kind of it kind of works as an actual adaptation of the uk version i think it's 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 a mess. It's it's not very good. I, I but I do have a like I, I I tried to watch it when it first came out and I, I really hated <laughs> it. Like I absolutely hated it. Couldn't stand it. Despised John Krasinski in it. Um, hated how everyone was sort of like jolly and happy and it felt almost like the opposite of what the actual office was. Uh, plus the 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 format, the documentary format, because that's awful you know they they don't realize that format very well so i didn't like it at all and i sort of went away from it for ages 
Um, and then I came back to it and I was, I can't remember what I was doing. I think I was working in a, I think I was working like basically overnights in an, in an edit suite uh, where I just had to like sit while stuff was, was uh, going on on the computers. So I started watching it because it was very easy to watch. It's like 20 minute episodes. You can watch like, you know, you can basically plow through three in an hour and, and it's sort of inoffensive, easy to watch. And so I then basically watched watched almost all of it uh, and the, the show had finished by then uh by the time i came back to it and i kind of watched yeah i i, I watched the whole thing and i still didn't really like it and then recently i watched it this is gonna sound really weird um i watched it with my infant son um because when he was about six seven months old um, I was trying different things to kind of like keep him entertained while I was looking after him and kind of like moving wallpaper. And he just really, really um, liked the theme tune. He would start giggling when the theme tune came on. So I just stuck it on on Netflix and just let it just play out. So I kind of I kind of watched it by proxy a second time. And I was like, actually, I've, I've warmed to this now. I've warmed to the characters. It's you know, it, it is a, it's funnier than I felt it was at the beginning. And now my partner who who never watched it, she's watching it and so I'm watching it with her. And again, enjoying it a lot more. This, I'm, But I'm saying this is somebody who was a Parks and Rec fan, which is sort of, you know, which was a, which was a sort of a, which well was originally intended as a spin-off from The Office. So there's a sort of a, a feedback loop there. I, I'm not going to go. Uh, sorry, I've already I've already waffled too much about it. Um, I still have loads of problems with it. I I dislike a lot of the the characters in it, and I think a lot of what they do in the American version doesn't work very well in comparison to the UK version. I, I, I think that um, it, it's very funny, but it, it is it is a sitcom in the sense in the way that The Office isn't, and I think it very very quickly becomes that. You know, it just happens to have. The, the 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 faux documentarian approach but it, that even that's not quite the same you never really get the sense that there the cameras are it's a show within a show in the same way it just happens to feel like somebody's filming them and they're just talking to the camera it's not like you know I, I, so so i i think it is different it is very performative it is it is traditionally sitcom in the way american sitcoms are and you know when it's when it's good so far, I'm finding it's fantastic. I'm having such fun with it, and I'm really I love the Jim and Pam romance in that. It is different. It is sweeter. Yeah. It is more obvious, but it's great. I really enjoy the character. Steve Carell is 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 so good as Michael Scott. He's a very different beast to Brent, even if they have certain connectives in in the in the things they need. You know the performative aspect, the self esteem, you know the the need to be loved, all this stuff. But it's different, and and so. It, it, and you know, actually, I think the, the supporting characters in the in the American Office are much stronger in than the British one because they have far more time to shine. They are given more to do. There's more episodes in which they can show their personalities and their nuances. They actually work much better than a lot of the very you know background off characters in the Office. But in a way, the background nature of those guys was the point in that they they existed. Just in the background, they never really well, yeah, were, this, were factored yeah. in to what was happening because it was so driven by these bigger personalities who were hogging the you know the camera. So it it, it, it by the office being twenty two, twenty four episodes a season, 
it is going to be a different beast. Whereas, you know, the British office had 12 episodes, 14 episodes total. You know, they do more than 14 episodes within, you know, one and a half seasons of, of, of a nine season show. So it's, it's mass. It's very different. Yeah. <laughs> and it takes the, the same concept, but very, very loosely does what the British one does. And it will never, it would never be able to be, have the same effect. You know, it's, it's just never going to happen with, with the American office because American and British comedy is so different that they you can't just adapt a British show exactly the same way. And they proved that in the fact they tried to do that script for the first ep- episode of the British office in on the American office and it flatlines. You know, it, it just absolutely dies on the table straight away. So that's I think, yeah. proof of what you're saying, essentially. Yeah, and I think, you know what, we could we could do and maybe we will do a sort of a whole episode just on you know, this, this, you know, this sort of like adaptation. And I think it, it becomes a point where you have to stop because you look at like, there are so many American adaptations of uh, British shows and the ones which have been successful are the ones that have basically completely Americanized it. So you get, you know, you have the American versions of men behaving badly never really worked because they can't really, it just doesn't, doesn't click that style of, of characterization american versions of uh faulty towers they've tried about four different times and it never quite clicks american version of steptoe and son they basically skewed it they changed it they they sort of they took a very american angle on that and it was one of their biggest shows and ran for you know years and years and years and that's the same thing with the office it's like you actually can't do an american version of the office but actually you can because the American version of The Office is the only way the Americans could do a version of The Office. So it has to be it has to be more like, you know, a, a little bit more of a Sam and Diane kind of, a, you know, romantic, you know, will they won't they kind of relationship. Michael Scott has to be, you know, a really nice guy who yeah. just wants to be loved as opposed to an asshole who just needs to be loved. You know, you that's the only way the Americans can work it. And again, like you say, the background, I love the fact that in the UK office, like you've got all these people in the background who are just trying to do their job. And also as some, you know, working in, in shows similar to the, the actual documentary of the office, um, you bait like the, the, the sort of in, in world, every single one of those people in the background would have recorded stuff the same way that Tim did. And then they'll have sat down in the edit and they'll have gone, right, you know what? Tim is the only interesting one because he kind of fancies Dawn. So let's focus on them. Uh, Keith, Keith's quite interesting because he's a bit of a, a bit of a character. But then, you know, the guy who has his trousers pulled down, you don't you don't focus on him. So it's that that kind of uh, I. So I like the realism of that. But of course, in the American version, you're always going to have you know, an American audience are going. Why is the guy in the background? What's he doing? What's let's hear about him. What's you know, and and. Uh, you know the difference between Keith like Keith is a very interesting weird sort of like character we just get a nice little little yeah. bit of him yeah uh but I think basically Kevin is the equivalent yeah. of Keith in the American version and the American version he's he's a big dumb fat guy because that's what the Amer- <laughs> the Americans the Americans associate you know big dumb fat guy ha 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 whereas for us Keith slightly inappropriate wants to be a DJ uh, really slow drawl you know that's that's a different we it's it's very different very different tastes of comedy 
which we can enjoy and they can enjoy. You know, they they mm. like our version of the office and we like yeah. their version of the office. Totally. But it's the context of yeah. of what it sits in. They can't be the same thing, which is fine, which is absolutely fine. And to their credit, I think yeah. from what I've seen yeah, so absolutely. far, they do, a, they do a really good job for the most part. So it's interesting looking at that. But I think I think we will come back to adaptations, definitely. I think there's a lot to mind there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, it's like The Office alone has like had you know adaptations in in Germany and India and Austria, you know, Canada as well. You know, like ev- everywhere has done a uh, has done an office. Yeah, and I think that's that's fascinating that you know the the legacy that this show alone mm. has. So let's finish then finally with choosing some key episodes. Then, so yes, of of the fourteen, why don't we why don't we pick. Let's pick. Let's pick one each. Actually, let's pick one each this time that we think we would encourage anyone to just go and watch. Let's because because there's not many of them. So if we if we pick one, our favourite, obviously The Office is one of those shows. If you haven't seen it, well, I'll be, I'll be amazed if you've got this far listening to us talk about it. But if you haven't seen it, <laughs> watch it from the beginning all the way through. But what do you think? What would you say is the best episode of the show? Uh, for me personally, I think training. I think. The training episode. We picked the same one. That's mine. That's mine as well. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I think that like episode episodes like um, the quiz or charity, they're kind of you know they're my sort of like backups, and 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 they have you know there's a lot going on, but training is so pure and identifiable, and actually you can kind of you can kind of like watch that episode by itself you know it it almost works as a one-act play without any previous knowledge of the characters which most of the other episodes even the great episodes and training really sums up that kind of that gray tedious they're in a room uh, you know the whole episode is so dull and officey and i've just forgotten the the guy's name who plays the training guy but he's right yeah he's like he's he's superb it's a it's a brilliant performance. Vincent Franklin, I think um, the actor is there. Yeah, Vincent Franklin. Yes, yes, really nice yeah, guy. Um, he's good. Yeah, he's so good. He's so good. He's 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 one of those kind of like you know improv adjacent actors. He's very good mm. at that kind of like reactive kind of kind of comedy acting. And yeah, it's it's just it's it's a perfect encapsulation of all the characters. You know, people that don't want to be there. Uh, they're making the most of it. You've got. Gervais and or Brent and his guitar and this kind of thing and it's like it's just it's just a perfect little little snapshot of what the office is and you've got Dawn has her stuff with Lee it, it tells you so much yeah. uh, whilst yeah. just being perfect and the the because I I've I've been in that situation it's like I've 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 been there I've been in that room and I've <laughs> I've actually I've been Rowan and I've been yeah. Tim. Yeah, and I've encountered David Brent's many a time. I yeah. just, I love it. It's the it's the best. It's great, but you know. So uh, I've got to ask you this, Rob. Ultimate fantasy. We 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 just do the ultimate fantasy. Uh, so. Yeah. Uh, Don't say what's going on. Just watching. <laughs> yeah. Such a super, no, such a br- it, such a brilliant gag. It's but what really what really sets it off is the fact he says sisters. That's <laughs> that's, that's what. Really yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's oh, you know Garen. what? It's a. It's like and not not to overanalyze the gag, but it's what we were, we were sort of talking about before about how you know Gareth is there's actually 
you know, there's there's something about Gareth where you feel an empathy <laughs> and a sympathy for him. And it's like there's something really innocent about the way he does that. Yeah. It's a brilliant, it's a superbly delivered so good. gag. But it's kind of like, well, it's he 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 misunderstood. And also the fact that his fantasy is so basic. It's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. you know, a cu- yeah. couple of women together and he's watching. It's like, it's but, uh, yeah. And then you get Tim's great. <laughs> I never thought I'd say this, but can I hear more from Gareth, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just great. It is really... It, that episode, I agree, is, is so perfect. It is just an absolute masterclass perfect, yeah. in how to do that but all of the all of the aspects of the show i think and that perfect sort of lock room kind of comedy there's no escape you're trapped with these idiots it's great it is it is that i think i think it is the best episode there are some great standouts throughout you know there's good stuff in every episode of the office but yeah training is hard to beat for sure so yeah i mean i suppose we'll wrap it up there really uh, we, we've unpicked it a lot. I think we probably would agree that it stands the test of time. The Office, you know, twenty years on, we're looking at it. Um, I think if we came back to it in twenty forty one, I still think we'd feel very similar, to be honest. So, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be back for another episode fairly soon, talking about something quite different. I think next time. So, um, yeah, just remind everyone, Rob, where they can find you online and what you're up to until we come back. Uh, yeah, well the. The best place to find me is on Twitter, uh, Four Ducks. That's my Twitter handle, um, and I am uh, doing more and more on uh, um, We Made This. So there should be you should start to see my name popping up there a little bit more as well, which will be fun. Uh, got a few reviews on there, part of the real talk as well. So um, yeah, Twitter is always a good place because that's where I where it's where I feed everything out from. Uh, don't put my name in Google because there's some weird Robert Turnbulls. <laughs> I'm going to do that now, just to see, just to see what I find. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my my main hub, I guess, is on Twitter as well. AJ Black Writer uh, on Twitter, and you'll find links to uh, the We Made This Network, WMT underscore Network, and uh, my wo- my website, thetruthisinhere.co.uk, um, with all the links to my writing and books and various different things like that. So. So yeah, thanks for joining us for another episode. Um, remember, we're part of the We Made This Podcast Network. Please subscribe to You Have Been Watching and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to help our network, please consider supporting us on Patreon if you go to patreon.com forward slash we made this. The office is not all we're talking about on the network, so we'll give you a little taste about what else you might have missed in just a minute. Until next time, you have been listening to Tony Black and Robert Turnbull. So we're off to save some Africans. We'll see you next time. Elsewhere on We Made This. Between the Notes, a TV and film music podcast. It's a prequel to Natasha's uh, death in Avengers Endgame, but it's also uh, in between lots of other stories that we've already seen. And she reconnects with her Russian family, uh, her Russian sister, played by Florence Pugh, and has to take on uh, an evil... uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, good, good luck describing the villain in this one. Good luck. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Called Drakov, played by Ray Winston. <laughs> yeah, he's he's doing the Russian. <laughs> uh, he'll go, Natasha, shall we go down and get the girls from the Red That's a really good impression. That's exactly what he says. Like, <laughs> he does. <laughs> he does. 
giddy carousel of pop. I was a big fan of Howard Jones at that point. I was actually in the Howard Jones fan club. It was very personal. His wife, I think, and his mum ran it, and you could write them all sorts of silly things, and they'd always send you a little postcard back, and I think they oh. sent me a postcard once, and it had Howard signed on it in, like, silver marker pen. You know, like, everything in the 80s was signed with silver marker pen. And I remember writing back to them saying, thank you for this. Did Howard really sign it? <laughs> <laughs> and they wrote back to me and like, yes, Howard did really sign it. <laughs> I fancy going to all that trouble. And they're like, no, no, yes, Howard did really sign it. <laughs> Observing the pattern, a fringe pop. I, I think the complete opposite to, to seeing yourself represented would be to see yourself overrepresented and just have it lashed into your face that there's a disabled person on the screen. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's, you know, oh, look, this person's gay. We're going to tell you that he's gay every time he's on the screen. You know, that's not okay. Just let them be there, man. That's how it is in real life. They're just there. Yeah. You know, and I, I think she... she she plays it very well. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. <laughs> I'm trying to say some Africans! Go see ya. Uh. <laughs>